Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 92 of Through the Years, the podcast reviews Ring of Honor, show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dame. The other familiar voice you will hear is Matt Feuerstein, as always, and the voice you will have heard one other time on this show. But if you listen to the Honorable Mention podcast, you will have heard that voice countless times. In fact, more times than you would have heard of you, our voices if you just listened to Through the Years, because even though they started after us, they actually have a work ethic. They have lapped us. Uh, Jeff Schwartz, co-host of Honorable Mention, along with Shane Hagedorn. Jeff, we got you back here to cover another Cleveland show. You are here. You are braving the allergies, the, I which I know will come for me soon, because I have like two weeks every year that just kill me. And it sounds like you are going through that as well, just for us. Yeah, you know what? It's it's shocking because today is the first day I've left the house in about three days, and uh, my voice has loosened up. It's I'm feeling the flow. Uh, I'm ready to go to to talk about this great show, Dissension. But um, yeah, all of a sudden my nose started running, and I'm like, God, this is the not the one thing, the one thing in this world that I can't stand is a runny nose. So. <laughs> We will not have any runny noses on this very show. We may have some bloody noses. Oh, yeah, we do. You know what? Again, I, uh, Matt, we just got a lesson from the master <laughs> here about transitions because I had forgotten that happened, and it like caught me off guard by that transition. I was like, where's he going? Oh, my God. Segway, Segway King, my friend. Exactly. Although now that you, men- now that you mention um, runny noses – in wrestling matches, it makes me think of something that I always think about, which is uh, like bodily functions that wrestlers might have to do during matches. Like when you're when you're watching like a really like major main event match, you have to figure at least in one of those real classic matches, someone had to take a shit, someone had to pee real bad, someone's nose couldn't stop running, somebody farted like multiple times. It had to happen at least in some of those matches, right? There are so many great matches over the years. And in one match that we love and we watch over and over again, I'm sure that somebody was farting up a storm. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, didn't didn't Sid shit himself at WrestleMania 13? Yes, but that was not uh, a classic. That was not a classic match. But was okay. some did somebody right. have to t- did somebody have to take a shit during Hart in Austin? Oh. It's possible. We'll never know. I believe Colonel Robert Parker during like the '94 War Games, famously, like yes. you could uh, see it. Uh, shit himself yes and of course there's like the old the stories of andre the giant like having accidents because he lived a hard life and uh but what about someone just like really having to go but you know uh, successfully holding it in you know and like that's like the one thing they remember we all love the match but the one thing they remember is that they really just had like really bad cramps do you, do you think there's ever been a match? Oh, there must have been a match where, um, since you're so curious, Matt, that um, do you think there's ever been a match where like someone had like an extra three minutes planned for the end, and they were just like, "I gotta, st- we gotta go home right now because I gotta go to the bathroom." <laughs> like just like this match could have been even better, but I had to take a shit. <laughs> By the odds, like you what you're thinking of. Some, uh, there must have been some match for that. And happened. just think, if you have an Iron Man match, you can't leave. That's right. You're literally stuck. So if you gotta go, you go. That's right. Whether yeah, whether it's one or two, all right. And and I um and I and I'm wondering, like, has anyone ever seen a match where somebody just like stopped the match to like blow their nose, like just grab a tissue from like or a napkin or something, and just be like, hey, I need to blow my nose. I like it's weird that I've never seen that happen. Sometimes you gotta blow your nose. 
Well, maybe that's where the Alex Shelley spot got started. Right. Oh, the snot, the, the snot block. It's just because you genuinely got to blow your nose. Exactly. Whoever invented that, I guess. We can, Chris, I ben, Chris Benoit was the first one I saw doing it. Yeah. I, I didn't want to say the name, but uh, yeah, that would be the first one. Matt, you've created the most awkward uh, segue opportunity. I And I am not a master of segues because we have to go to the plugs. And we have a couple things to plug that we don't normally have to plug. And one is pretty serious. Um, I would say... Um, yeah, this has been a rough week for America, even though I'm not an American. I obviously have a lot of friends in America, people I know, and, uh, with the, uh, Roe versus Wade being overturned. And so I thought I would try and do something because I've been seriously considering, uh, getting rid of my Twitter on August 7th, which would be my birthday because just various reasons. There's no big deal, but a lot of people have been saying, oh, I like your Twitter, don't go away. So I thought, okay, I will try and weaponize this and do it for charity. So if I get enough donations, the deadline's going to basically be Monday morning. If I get enough donations to this specific charity I will bring up right now, I will stay on Twitter at least for another year, if not permanently. Um, that charity is, let me just find the URL. Uh, should have written this down beforehand, but I did not. It is the Repro Legal Defense Fund. Um, if you just Google that, you will go find it. Uh, they have a donate page. You can donate even a one-time donation. It can be any amount. I know times are tough, so five bucks even, that would be great. And um, just when you go down to, would you like to uh, – in tribute of somebody, say, yeah, in honor of somebody, would you like to send a gift announcement? Say, yes, email. And then for the email, just type in um, Trevor Dame sells out at gmail.com. D-A-M as in mother E for Dame. Trevor Dame sells out, no spaces, at gmail.com. And I was just talking to the people at the charity. They were going to send me a nice list of everybody. And we've already had some big donations. Um on Monday, and at that point, I will decide whether or not to stay on Twitter. If not, either way, just something stupid that hopefully goes to something good. Uh, yeah, apart from that, we got our usual just um, our feeds, you know, through the years. The feed is the regular feed, but we also have a feed on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. Well, not a feed, but we're just on that, and we also are on YouTube. And finally, one last plug. Uh, I actually got to be on a cool little podcast called uh, You've Got to Be Kidding Me, which is all about uh, TNA on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. And they had an episode where they basically had a bunch of people from the world of wrestling record their thoughts about TNA on the 20th anniversary. So I am on that. I thought, oh, I, I'll, I'll be hard to do three minutes, Matt. I think I ended up talking for 16 to myself about TNA. And uh, a lot of big names on it. I'm really the outlier there. So it, great podcast there. You guys should check it out. If you're a fan of TNA, if you like podcasts like this, but for TNA, I mean, they have fancy graphics and everything way more production than this show, but either way, that's the plug. And, and I just want, I want to second your, um, your endorsement of that charity. Um, if you, um, if you read Trevor on Twitter and follow him, you know, you get kind of a, a double, a double good deed by keeping them on Twitter, but also donating to a very worthy cause. But even if you don't follow Trevor on Twitter or care about whether or not he's on Twitter, this is an extremely worthy cause. And uh, yeah, I am an American and it's a very upsetting uh, week. And I, uh, you know, I hope that, you know, some, you know, we can do at least the tiny bit of 
good that we can from this podcast. Yeah, and hopefully we can offer a little bit of distraction. Obviously, you don't want to be distracted all the time from the issues, but you know, do some good. Then take a few hours off and listen to us talk about uh, AJ Styles having a nosebleed and Loki being insane, and then go back to the fights. But we have one new story that between the last show and this show, but actually it didn't happen. Matt, this kind of fell through the cracks. It was something I should have had for last episode. It's a very weird little thing, but I just it tickled me, so I wanted to bring it up. I did not find this until after we recorded uh, two shows ago, which was Hell Freezes Over, of course. Uh, Wade Keller did a review of the show. I was not expecting this because I usually look up the torches, but not so far ahead because I felt like, oh, the torches have kind of given up reviewing these DVD releases. Well, Wade on a, went on a kick at the start of 2006, apparently, and he did a review of uh, Hell Freezes Over. He gave it a 7 out of 10. But there are a couple quotes, and there's one that kind of just – it is the most Wade Keller quote. The first one is not the most Wade Keller quote, but I just wanted to say it because I thought it would be interesting to show how like people that were not watching Chris Hero kind of saw Chris Hero at this time. It, it kind of goes to our – Talk, our talk about Chris here on the Hell Freezes Over show, which we extensively went into. But this is Wade Keller's review. He wrote, Chris Hero looked awkward in the Rosie-like superhero outfit. He was bigger than Danielson, but didn't seem in his league as a wrestler. He looked flabby and WWE-like, out of place in the Ring of Honor world. The match got more heat than it deserved because the Ring of Honor fans were so vocal in trying to drown out any noise the invading CZW fans made. So... I thought that was interesting because I feel like that was a lot of people's first reaction to Chris Hero. And I think obviously he would change a lot of people's opinions over time. But then, Matt, this is the uh, the one I want to really point out. So uh, that show for people that forget, and it would be very easy to forget because it was a meaningless match. There was a six-man mayhem at Hell Freezes Over and, you know, a bunch of high flyers and Adam Pierce is the odd man out. He just did a wacky spot where he tried to break dance like Jack Evans. It's a standard comedy spot you would see in a bunch of crazy multi-man matches. Matt, Wade Keller really took this to heart. So let me read this. Um, Wade writes, I'm far from sold on Adam Pierce based on his performance on this show. He seemed tone deaf when he played a comedy heel role in the six man mayhem match when trying to imitate Jack Evans breakdancing. It just didn't ring true that he tried to one up Evans at something, frankly, his character wouldn't aspire to be good at. Then his lame attempt to imitate Evans came across as insincere and insulting. It was obvious he was tanking his effort at breakdancing for laughs and it just came across as lame and undercut his character rather than enhancing it. Matt, <laughs> oh, it, it was one comedy like like Wade is really taking this seriously. It's it's funny though because you said like it's such a classic Wade Keller line, and I think you're right because like the thing that I could say about Wade's analysis is it's just weird. Like like there's nothing there's like I don't feel like there's any like specific like consistent characteristics like where I can predict what Wade is going to say about a match. It's just always kind of weird, right? Like, like, you know what I mean? Like, there's not like, oh, yeah, that's a Wade-ism. You know, Wade likes this. It's like, it's just weird. It's just like, what is he talking about? That's, that's what I, that's what I feel a lot of time. I don't, I don't, I honestly don't blame him for the Chris Hero thing because, like, if, if that match was your first impression of Chris Hero, like, it was a good match, but I do think he comes off that way a little bit if you have no, no idea about him. But, that that thing with Adam Pierce, yeah, it's just yeah, it's just weird. Like his Wade's analysis is just weird. Sometimes he's right about stuff, sometimes he's wrong, but it's always weird. It's always weird in an endearing way. But um, yes, 
let's br- let's bring it to the show now. The show we are covering tonight is Dissension. It took place January 28, 2006 at Gray's Armory in Cleveland, Ohio, for a reported crowd of 550 fans. The Observer at the time, in fact, wrote about this double shot weekend. Dave wrote, both January 27th in Dayton and January 28th in Cleveland drew roughly 550 fans each, which basically means the events were profitable even before DVD sales. Most fans seemed to realize Samoa Joe wasn't going to be there, as there was no negative reaction when it was announced both nights, and fans were happy to see Low-Key as a replacement. Um, Dave also wrote, Overall from Cleveland, it was a long show going four hours and 20 minutes with no bad matches. Um, so first thing I want to say is, Matt, we can just add this to the list of the number of times Dave and to a lesser degree Wade said, oh, these shows broke even or made a profit before even DVDs that turned out to not be true. Because, in fact, again, I'll have to find the quote one day because I think the shows are coming up. But I believe Kerry Silken on his podcast has gone as far to say that the only shows in Ring of Honor history that were profitable before like DVD sales were the WrestleMania weekend shows in Chicago in 2006. But Dave and to a less degree weight have said probably like 20 shows have been profitable when the owner of the company has said otherwise. Um, and then apart from that, I guess we should mention that um, Samoa Joe, this was only announced that he wasn't going to be on these shows. We talked about the last show because of a staff infection. Um, these, this was only announced, I think on the 25th. So fans only had two or three days notice to learn that. And something I didn't know until I listened, Jeff, uh, to you guys on, on an honorable mention covering this show, because you guys have already covered this entire event on an episode. So that's a great place for fans to listen to, obviously, was that I guess Joe, you said, was still at these shows, like signing autographs. Yeah. Yep. He was that, at the table. Um, he signed Night of the Grudges 2 for me. <laughs> and drew drew a rather offensive uh, male genitalia uh, on the cover of my DVD. And um, offensive because yeah. he didn't do a good job with the drawing, right? No, no, no. because it was way large and it, <laughs> it went into my name, and it was a whole big thing. Um, it, the guy, look, if you've never met Samoa Joe, um, I don't remember. It might have been even Hagador in the came up with this, but he is the coolest guy in the room, no matter what room he's in. He's this generation's Kevin Nash, uh, as far as like a swagger and a presence to him. And he's just constantly funny without putting any effort into it. So, you know, on this night, I remember specifically January in Cleveland, you know, it's usually cold, but uh, this was an unusually warm, January evening in Cleveland and uh, Joe even remarked to me, he's like, what's with the weird weather you guys have here? And he's just, he, you know, even if he's talking about the weather, he's funny. Maybe, so. maybe Tony Khan was at this warm night in Cleveland and that's why he decided to have his beach break shows on January yes. in Cleveland. And I can, I can confirm to you that that beach break show from this past January, um, it was the coldest day in <laughs> Cleveland, in the city of Cleveland, where the building was. Um, I would, if I remember right, I want to say it was the coldest day temperature wise since like 1974. Wow. <laughs> it was six degrees below zero at showtime. Um, 
when they sent Tony and Will Hobbs and Ricky Starks to the lake um, to film their little promo, uh, the ice was sturdy enough that Will Hobbs could stand there and not even really like squirm or feel like he was going to fall through it. That's a big man. So uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I thought Cleveland was always hot because of that sitcom, you know, hot in Cleveland. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. Hey, Betty White, man, she knew what she was talking about. <laughs> we, so, are, um, we are the mistake on the lake no longer. <laughs> so a couple other quick little notes. Um, this was another show that Milano Collection AT was supposed to be on. This was in this weird nether region, nether realm of a time period. No, ne- the, nether, the nether region is what Samoa Joe drew <laughs> yeah, on Jeff's, uh, Jeff's autograph. Yeah, on my DVD cover. Yeah. But uh, this was the time where clearly uh, Milano and Ray of Honor were having problems and he was not going to come back. But Ring of Honor was either – it was still up in the air or Ring of Honor was still acting like he was because Ring of Honor on their website wrote just a few days before the show, Milano Collection AT will be forced to miss this weekend shows. Milano told Ring of Honor officials that he is still suffering from neck problems. Milano says he has to go back to Japan to get his neck examined, although he should be back in the United States this weekend. We apologize for the cancellation. and. um <laughs> Oh, what are you going to say, Jeff? I, I was going to say that the timeline there doesn't doesn't strike me as being very solid. Um, you know, if he's making a we say twenty plus hour flight to Japan, getting his neck looked at, turning around, going right back to the airport. Yeah, I, we do know the matches he was going to be on. So the previous night, I forgot to mention on the last show, which had the uh, the second annual trios tournament, uh, that was going to be Milano in Jay Fury's place. It was going to be kind of a team Italia, team Italia with a you know Tony Mamaluke and Sal Renaro. That would have been cute. And on this night, it was going to be before, of course, um, Joe pulling out because of the staff infection and Milano pulling out. It was going to be Matt Seidel versus Jay Fury versus Delirious versus Abyss in a four way. So uh that wow, that's an that that's an interesting one. Yeah. But instead we get the show we are about to cover. We open with Dave Prezak backstage with Matt Seidel to get the pulse pounding payoff to the incredible cliffhanger <laughs> at the end of the last show, which for those who did not listen to the last show, it ended with Matt Seidel saying he was going to sleep on it and decide if he was going to continue to tag with AJ Styles, go after the tag titles. I love I love this promo for unintentional reasons. Yes, we're about to get to, or if he was going to listen to his pal Austin Aries and not go after the tag title. So we get this promo. Praise that gas, Matt. If after a night of thinking it all over, will he and AJ Styles go after the tag titles currently held by his Generation Next stablemates, Roderick Strong and Austin Aries? Seidel says in a line that Matt immediately told me when he watched it that he just loved this line. Seidel says, it was a long night of thinking it over. He, quote, Laid in bed all night. Yes, Matt pointed out to me. Is what you do when you sleep. Yes, he never said. He never said I laid in bed awake all night. He never said I tossed and turned all night. He said I laid in bed all night. And I said, oh, "Well, that sounds like a good night. Sounds like you did what you were supposed to do all night." I would have loved if he even took it further, Matt. Could you imagine if Seidel was like, "Yeah, I was thinking about it so hard. It was like I went to this weird eight-hour coma where I just blacked out. When I woke up. It was the morning." I like, can imagine that. I can. <laughs> So um, Matt says tonight he might beat Christopher Daniels and also AJ Styles recently asked him to be his tag team partner to go after the tag titles. He says it's more than he could have ever imagined his career would get to, which I mean, that's not bad. I would argue 
maybe have a little bit bigger ambitions than even just getting to tag with somebody and wrestle one other person once. But he says he's going to have to go back to Dave Prezak later, as right now he's too focused on his match with Daniels tonight. I wrote my notes at this point. Jesus Christ, is this LeBron James's decision? Like, how many <laughs> shows are we getting to now? Where, like, because um, Jeff, I don't know if you remember, uh, but us having just watched the prior night show on our last episode, like they made that show like throughout the night. They kept talking about like Matt Seidel's decision, and then they because they like, oh, he'll tell us tonight. Then they open this show, and he's still like, I gotta keep thinking about it. Like, they've teased this for the better part of two shows now. Well, you know what happened? You know what happened? They went into the future and they listened to our episode on Hell Freezes Over, where you complained that they didn't make a big enough issue about the fact that Seidel was having to challenge his own Generation Next stablemates. So they were like, all right, let's go back and add this thing where they make a really big deal about it for two full DVDs, just to please that damn Trevor Dame 16 years later. But, um, yeah, Seidel walks away. Gabe says, cut from behind the camera. And Prezak tells Gabe to keep the camera on Seidel tonight because, quote, maybe they can get an answer from him without saying so on promo, unquote, which will get to be like, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit as well. Um, we cut to somewhere else backstage where we find the embassy of Prince Nana, Daisy Hayes, Alex Shelley, and Jimmy Ray. And when you say someone, you say somewhere else, like, what the hell was this room? This was like some weird, weird, dank storage room with all sorts of, like, bizarre, like, random objects behind them. Yeah, if you listen to the honorable mention episode, you guys go extensively into how you think this place might be haunted. This, this is upstairs in the classroom area. Um, and if you go kind of there's a, a circle staircase to the second level and then there there's a room that alex Payne and shane Aguilar swears haunted don't believe them it's a bunch <laughs> of nonsense there are many other haunted places in cleveland this is not one of them uh but it definitely was like a creepy room and it, there was like one school desk like isolated by itself clearly somebody put it there just for amusement purposes but i believe that's the room that this embassy segment is shot in well i, I believe you also mentioned on that episode that um there was there's a, a uh a cemetery right next to gray's armory and now i believe yes. you said in in recent years there are now cemeteries on two sides of the building so enhancing shane's theory that gray's armory is haunted but um uh, I, to, to be completely honest with you, I have not been up this way in obviously with COVID in quite some time, uh, at least in, in warm weather. Um, but I will be up there, uh, I guess we're taping this on the 25th. I'll be up there in uh, about a week and a half for, for a ball game. So uh, I am going to go over and explore what's happening with the Grays Armory <laughs> since the last time I was there. Um Maybe maybe you can help book a wrestling show there for the, for the future, so we can get we can find out uh, what it really looks like today inside. I, I want to run Final Battle twenty twenty two inside the Gray's Armory. <laughs> Tony, you listening? Let's do uh, it. We can uh, so on this promo anyway. We can hear Abyss uh, grunting off camera. 
Uh, Rave says he doesn't like being in Abyss's dungeon, so even they're acknowledging in this promo how creepy this area is. Uh, Nana says they were all partying last night, celebrating their big win at the Trios tournament. Uh, Daisy says that they're the best. Uh, Rave says he's going to use the title shot he won in the Trios tournament to wrestle Brian Danielson for the world title at the fourth anniversary show. Alex Shelley, meanwhile, wants to use his title shot at the February 11th show, which would be before the fourth anniversary show. Rave at this point gets mad about this. He starts bickering about Shelley's recent golden hair dye, his choice of dates for the title shot. Um, Nana tries to calm his boys down. He wants them to focus on bringing the world title to him. He doesn't care who does it. Nana finally then unleashes the beast as he sticks Abyss on the cameraman. The cameraman turns to his side, revealing Abyss's big old face right in the camera, who I guess we're supposed to believe, I guess, murders the cameraman in an extreme close-up where Abyss just moves his hands near the camera but doesn't actually touch it. It's like one of those old, like, 50s 3D horror movie effects where it just bouncing in and out like that old SCTV sketch. Very adorable. That brings us to the dark matches that we did not see on the DVD, but there were three of them on the show. And there's a story behind the third one, actually. First one, Jason Rain and Marco Cordova defeated Derek Dempsey and Pele Primo. Bobby Dempsey and Smash Bradley defeated Mitch Franklin and Rhett Titus in a second-ever match. And Crazy Jay and Lotus, the future Dave and Jake Crist, defeated Conrad Kennedy III and Shane Hagedorn. So this was, as we talked about on the last show, the debut weekend in Ring of Honor for the Chris brothers under their old Juggalo names. But there's a kind of an interesting story that uh, Dave Meltzer would allude to, I guess, or maybe there's a story, who knows, about this, about them doing this. Because this was not what they were, they were originally booked for a different show. And in fact, this other show is a very interesting show in itself. So we will go to The Observer. Dave wrote, a lot of new high flyers are being brought into Ring of Honor, including Crazy Jay and Lotus, who debuted in pre-show matches both nights of the Devil Shot. The idea is to have more tag team scramble matches as high-flying attraction belts on the lower cards. And before I get to the second note, it is interesting that, like, we've been noticing, Matt, lately that, like, Jay Fury and Jarrell Clark and Jason Blade and Kid Mikazi and, you know, now Crazy Jay and Lotus are all getting bl- brought in. All this, this glut of new high flyers... And none of them really end up sticking. Like, you know, none of them really become entrenched in the company. But yeah. they all kind of come in and none of them really. I, th- I think they, they, they try to run with, run with the Chris for longer than the others. Yeah, as but, Irish Airborne. Yeah, but they, um, but yeah, no, none of them end up really being particularly long term. You know, Clark comes back a little bit um, later in the year, but doesn't really stick then either. Yeah, but um, we'll go to a different Observer story. So this is both a double story because it kind of explains something about the Chris, but also explains why Chris Hero, who was part of the big CZW angle the night before with the Necro Butcher, why Necro only was had to do this angle on this night by himself. Because Chris Be- Hero had a different booking. Going to back to the Observer, Dave wrote, Rob Feinstein's official first show back as a promoter since being ousted from Ring of Honor after the perverted justice scandal took place January 28th in Boonton, New Jersey. There were a few strange things. They actually moved buildings to a new building down the street a few weeks ago without telling anyone. The claim was the original building only held 250 seats and they didn't want to overflow. The original building was getting calls from perverted justice and several other Feinstein enemies about Feinstein's well-known issues. (laughs) 
In early 2004, Feinstein, then the majority owner of Ring of Honor, was shown on camera on a Philadelphia news station slash perverted justice sting showing up at a home where purportedly a 14-year-old boy was. When the decision was made to move the building, they didn't want anyone to know, figuring the new building would then get the same calls. This is a problem every Feinstein run show is probably going to have. They ended up with about 175 fans and what was said to be a good show built around a Harry Smith versus Chris Hero match. Tommy Dreamer worked unadvertised and unscheduled doing a bloodbath against Mana after Sabu's flight was delayed four hours. Sabu ended up arriving at 10.45 p.m. and ran in the front door and ran through a five-minute match with Mana after most fans figured he was a no-show. Crazy J and Lois were advertised no-shows and ended up debuting for Ring of Honor that weekend. Those things usually aren't coincidences, Dave writes. Um, so, yeah, you know, this was... Uh, Kind of the feisty time where it didn't really take, where Rob tried to get back into promoting again post Ring of Honor, and uh, yeah, like Dave's. I mean, we don't know for a fact, but like Dave says, usually when guys are double booked and they choose one over the other, those often are not coincidences. And it's kind of crazy that it kind of works perfectly, even though I know this wasn't planned. That Chris here, who is just working, starting to work this huge anti Ring of Honor angle, has to miss this show. Because he is main eventing, main eventing or, or working at least in a major match, a Rob Feinstein show that's <laughs> happening at the same time. Doug Gentry, was he involved in that promotion as well? Probably I'm not so. sure. I would assume. I mean, Doug was, you know, Rob's best, best, best friend. Yeah. 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 But uh, real and I, and I think that's, I mean, we knew this for a fact, I think, at the time. But another confirmation that... They really did not know when they first booked Chris Hero to face Danielson at Hell Freezes Over that they were ever going to use him again and this was going to really take off because clearly Hero had already had a prior booking on this night that he couldn't break. Well, I guess if you're the Irish, if you're if you're the Chris, you can break it, but Chris Hero was not going to break it. But seems like the Chris made probably the best decision for them because they did get a little bit of a run and they definitely got a real opportunity at least in ROH during that era. Uh, but Matt, you know, Rob Feinstein, 2006, the real power player in the industry. But um, <laughs> moving on to the opener that we got to see, Adam Pierce defeated Jay Fury via pinfall in three minutes, 28 seconds after he had a top rope splash. Um, Matt, this is a, uh, you know, classic kind of Ring of Honor special in the sense of it's a new guy, new to Ring of Honor. And he gets very little time to showcase what he gets to do. Let's say even less time than usual here. Um, this was like a, just a total squash, but I'd say it's above average for a squash of that length. Like it was fun the entire time, and I thought Fury looked looked good. I thought the crowd was pretty hot. You know, Fury showed some babyface fire. He did some cool moves, some cool kicks. He did a nip up into a kick, which Prezak called the J Tricks, which. I, I assume is what it's called. I haven't really seen a lot of Jay Fury uh, FIP matches. Um, and then, you know, Pierce got some nice agility. He didn't do as much comedy here. He just sort of, you know, sold a little bit, then did, was dominant, showed a little bit of agility by flipping over Jay's back and hitting a roll-up, hit the spine buster, hit the superfly splash, got the clean win. Very, very short. Um, but, you know, I'd say, I mean, fine while it lasted. Yeah, uh, Jeff, what did you think? I mean, we didn't get to see a lot of Jeff Fury, I mean, Jay Fury, and, uh, I mixed up names, uh, a lot of Jay Fury in Ring of Honor, but uh, he did look good so far in the couple instances Matt and I have rewatched. Like, 
you know, he had some good agility for a guy of his kind of body type and size. Yeah, he um he's built like Jonathan Gresham. Yeah. For people that are, you know, unaware of who Jay Fury is. Um similar height wise, maybe a little taller, not much though. But not not not, not as jacked as Gresham, but yeah, yeah. and I was gonna say not as not as like, you know, muscle muscle bound. Um but very athletic, and I was really impressed. I had seen him in NWA Wildside and FIP as well. Um, so I was looking forward to getting getting a look at him in person. I saw him the night before. saw him again here. I liked what I saw. I thought he had a lot of personality. The crowd was into him. But to me, this match was perfect, um, even though it didn't give Jay Fury a lot of chances to get an extended showing, it kind of cut short his chances of maybe messing anything up. And Pierce is the perfect guy to put him against because on paper it may look like complete opposites, but in reality, Pierce is the perfect base to do the big bumps, you know, the big exaggerated Memphis-style bumps for Jay Fury's offense, and then wipe them away with a spine buster and a big splash and onto the, the angle that comes after. Um, I yeah. really, really thought this was the perfect, uh, maybe not like a five-star, four-star, whatever label you want to put on it, but it was solid and short and enjoyable the entire way through. Yeah, it was enjoyable for what it was. I still get kind of frustrated sometimes where I'm like, Why'd you even bring a guy in like to two, three minutes? Like, but, but that's a whole other cost analysis that that above my pay grade. Yeah. But for what it was, it was decent. The only, I agree with both you guys. The only real note I had was, um, I have one more Wade Keller. Wade Keller and Adam Pierce is the feud of 2006 in my opinion. <laughs> I, have, I have another Wade Keller comment here. So for those who didn't see this match, there's a spot in this match. Again, a very standard comedy spot. Adam, uh, heel, I've seen multiple heels do this in my life. Adam Pierce at one point scratches his balls and then he offers a handshake with the idea of, hey, if you shake my hand, I just scratch my balls and you know that. And Fury won't take it, so Pierce kicks him in the t- in the stomach before the bell. Very standard, gross comedy heel spot. Wade Keller had opinions on this too, because Wade Keller wrote, "Pierce rubbing his crotch several times before offering a handshake was one of the stranger things I've ever seen a wrestler do." I would just say Wade Keller has <laughs> followed wrestling for a very long time. I can guarantee you he had seen at least 300 stranger things than someone scratching their balls and asking for a handshake. Oh but um, Wade, Wade is just perplexed by the, by the essence of Adam Pierce. Um, I wonder if he's gotten used to him by now that he's a WWE TV <laughs> character. But we, now we get to the angle that uh, Jeff alluded to. After the match, Pierce grabs the mic. He slides a chair in the ring. He asks the ref to get that piece of garbage Jay Fury out of the ring. Pierce tries to start talking, but he gets drowned out by huge shut-the-fuck-up chants. Pierce says he knows Jim Cornette's going to make an announcement tonight, and he wants a front-row seat for it. So he sets up his chair in the corner, sits down, and Bobby Cruz introduces Jim Cornette. 
Cornette is comes out. He's in a much happier mood than he was the night before. He points out his missing tooth, which is a very prominent to- missing tooth in the front of his face. Uh, he apologizes, which is where teeth are. Good job, Trevor. Um, anyway, he apologizes for the language he said used the night before. And then he starts to recap what happened that night with Hero, Chris Hero and Necro Butcher. When Necro Butcher shows up again tonight on this show in the front row, holding his ticket. If, for those who are wondering if you see a very large man in a suit who's, who, who makes multiple cameos on the show, who is very animated next to, um, Necro during this entire segment. That would be Chandler Biggins, one of the minds behind one of the more prominent US Indies now, AEW, AIW. He, uh, tragically passed away a, uh, few years ago, way too soon. But, um, he makes a big cameo here and you can hear him heckling the entire night. Um, Cornette at this point turns from, oh, anyway, Necro show is there. He's, um, waving his ticket. Cornette turns from calm to pissed off instantly. He asks Necro if that's a ticket to be here or to the peep show where he mops up jizz. Uh, Cornette says Necro calls himself a butcher, but he couldn't beat his own meat. Didn't he make that same joke the night before? I, I think so. I mean, Probably. <laughs> Necro, that, said, that's a lot. The jizz mopper line is something he has used. I mean, I could probably find some sort of shoot interview where he he does that line in like Smoky Mountain Fan Week era. Yeah, yeah he probably he probably should just put that line on a T-shirt at some point. Yeah, <laughs> jizz mopper T-shirt. Um, <laughs> you could mop so, the jizz with the T-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> you too. Um, will you? I'm, I'm I'm the gorilla here. Will you two stop? But uh. He, then he says if Necro had to take a piss test, he'd stay up all night studying for it. He tells Necro to go back to his cockfight friends and tell them that the next time they show up at a Ring of Honor event, Cornette will personally get everyone from this locker room to beat the piss out of them. Necro at this point proceeds to take off his jacket and his shoes as the crowd chants huge for Ring of Honor. Cornette says he lost a tooth because of Necro and his freak show buddy the night before. So while he isn't a wrestler, neither is Necro. He challenges him to get in the ring and fight him right now. Adam Pierce at this point grabs the mic and he tries to calm Cornette down as the crowd chants, fuck him up, Cornette, fuck him up. Uh, Pierce challenges Necro to see what he's made of. Pierce then decides to get Necro himself, jumping to ringside, pulling Necro over the guardrail. He and Necro have a quick, intense brawl at ringside that Cornette actually joins in on. He, like, gets down at ringside and, like, throws a couple forms or punches at Necro before a million Ring of Honor students restrain Necro, who is now just screaming his head off really intensely. They work hard to drag him backstage. Pierce gives chase. Cornette and Pierce quickly then come back to the ring. The fans give a big Jim Cornette chant. Cornette tells Pierce he doesn't like a lot of things Pierce has done, and he thinks that Pierce likes to suck up and likes to kiss ass, but he just helped Cornette out. Jim offers his hand. Pierce shakes it. Um, I thought this was a good angle. I thought this was actually probably a little bit better than the angle they did the night before. Had a kind of a different vibe, but in some ways it was a little less intense. In some ways it was a bit more intense. I liked kind of the pull apart. It was really intense. Uh, you know, Cornette, some of his lines are cheesy, but this crowd on this night, I mean, Ohio's kind of like home Cornette territory. They were eating up everything he said. And, you know, it, it is one of those things where, like, I think a big part of the novelty of this, too, is I feel about this the way a lot of people were feeling about um like a lot of sting these days in AEW where people go sting is, you know, wrestling or teaming up with CM Punk or he's doing this. Like it's crazy. You feel like this can't be real. I feel like even rewatching all these years later, like the necro butcher and Jim Cornette, like 
getting in a physical angle with each other feels like something that sh- like they feel like two people from completely different universes that they should never be in the same place. So it is kind of a weird novelty to see them together. Um, Jeff, what did you think about this as an angle? I mean, I obviously you're not a huge Cornette fan, but I mean, on this night, it was a pretty, see, you know, just with this stuff is just starting. It was probably pretty exciting to be a part of it when, you know, people didn't really know how big this was going to be. It, it was weird. Um, just the idea, like, even at this point, I had had pretty much enough of Jim Cornette um, and kind of his view on wrestling I didn't agree with. Even in 2006, um, I know a lot of people are big fans of his OVW run, and there are some highlights and good stuff in there, but on the whole, I thought it was vastly overrated. But then you come to an angle like this where Jim Cornette is the perfect character to make as kind of the nucleus for everything to play off of. And then you have Pierce as this ass kisser to Cornette, but also Pierce is a legitimate tough guy who has credibility and only gains more credibility through Jim Cornette, through fighting Necro. The war between ROH and CZW is just starting. The crowd is molten hot. This was as loud as they got, I would say, for the majority of this show. Yeah, I'd agree. They got very uh, hot for this. It was. It helps that it was at the beginning of the show, too. Absolutely. And, and t- the timing of when they put this on during the show was, was very big. Um, I thought it was... I was never a big Necro Butcher fan. Um, I was more intrigued by what he was and what he could do in this universe, so to speak. But I never imagined it would blossom into, you know, what it would become for him in ROH. Um, This story itself was just beginning, so that was also really cool to you know, have my friends alongside with me. I think my brother may have come to this show as well. And um, for all of us to see this story unfold at its its beginning, um, pretty cool moment. Pretty special. Uh, Matt, what do you think? I, I will say, Matt, some, we've recently, like, been, obviously we rewatch all the shows in order, but, like, we've seen on recent shows, like, they've been doing kind of this Pierce Cornet angle that probably was going to be something different, more antagonistic before uh, they, you know, switch to the CZW field where they become allies. But I like that they actually went the extra mile at the end of this angle with just that Coven Cornet, just do a couple lines of basically being like, look, you're an ass kisser, but you helped me out. Like just acknowledging rather than just like immediately like we're friends, at least having, you know, I like when Ray has that little connective tissue of being like, I'm going to acknowledge what's been happening on recent shows but find a way to kind of transition it to, okay, now we're not enemies anymore. Yeah, there. I mean, Gabe is very good at that stuff. Like, yeah. And I'd say very few other bookers are, um, especially in the modern era. And, I, you know, I agree with both of you that this was, this was really good. Um, but, um, you know, it being Cornette and, you know, many years later, I do have my hang-ups. Um, the first one being um, just the way Cornette talks about CZW. 
you know, and I get that he's playing a role in trying to defend the Ring of Honor way, but just the way he says it makes him sound like a heel to me. Basically, when he calls Necro Butcher a freak, and I think this is just like a me thing, but when you use the word freak to insult somebody, that automatically makes you a villain to me. You know what I mean? Because it's just like it's marginalizing people who are different. I don't know what, I don't know. It's a weird thing for me, but I don't really find that you can ever call someone a freak in a negative way. And sound like a good person. Does that make sense? Like, am I, am I insane? A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, think, uh, of, think of how much Cornet stick, like the things that he was saying to Necro. Think, how does that apply in twenty twenty two? This segment does not age well. Yeah, I like, think well, that's what it is. Have, that's what it is. You know, fourteen years or sixteen years. I had to do a little math there. Hold on. Uh, 16 years ago, you have this segment, the crowd is going insane, and, uh, you know, now it's, if, if you put your 2022 hat on, eh, there's a lot of stuff in here. Yeah. And, and I think that's just a general statement, there's just a lot of things that were acceptable 16 years ago that are not now. Yeah, it reminds me, it reminds me, sorry, sorry, Trevor, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I was just gonna say to you, bring it back to you, Matt, to your point, I didn't put this in the notes, but I think in the like one of the these kind of Wade Keller reviews that I was mining for Adam Pierce nuggets of gold. Uh, I think he even said something, and you know, you would think he'd be he like Wade even said something. I think to the effect of like Jim Cornette's making Ring of Honor kind of look like the heel in these promos with like the energy of his promos, and he, yeah, he like. He very much feels like kind of like the bully picking on the underdog when in most other aspects of wrestling, Ring of Honor tried to position itself as like this scrappy underdog. And in this feud, they're like with Cornette, it's kind of like they're the bully. They're the establishment. Right. I think any time where you're like your your hook is, oh, these other guys aren't good enough for us, like you become the – you know, you become the asshole. You become the smug assholes. Like they could have gone from it in another another way. And obviously, like Ring of Honor, we're going to be the baby faces to the Ring of Honor crowd, no matter what. But just looking at it with a distance, it feels weird. It reminded me of there was a promo that with between the Ultimate Warrior and Goldust in 1996, where Ultimate Warrior called Goldust a freak, and obviously Warrior was the baby face and Goldust was the heel. But like knowing what we know about the homophobia of the Ultimate Warrior, it feels extra weird and and creepy when when you hear that um but anyway i get that that's I'm surprised like, that's yeah. the f word he used yeah <laughs> well it's the one the one he got, got on tv WWE yeah might have been the other <laughs> was it yeah was it jerry lawler that dropped the other slur well yeah he said he said the q word um to uh yeah. to gold dust yeah i was thinking somebody dropped the f slur on gold dust like in that period of time it, well definitely crowds did well, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm saying like TV character wise. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. You're probably right. Um, but um, the other the other things I want to say about this, like, so you know, but but you know, besides that, you know, Cornette obviously did a good job. Besides, you know, going to his very stock lines that he does. Um, but the other thing is, it's interesting because. Obviously, Pierce does a great job as, you know, during his like temporary babyface run in the CZW feud, and we'll see that. He was a great pick. But it is still a little bit weird to have one of the top representatives of ROH be a guy who, this was what, like his fifth or fourth, yeah, fifth or sixth ROH appearance ever. And he's like standing up for ROH more than almost anybody. It's just, it's just an interesting choice. Like I said, it's a good choice because he obviously is up for the challenge and he rises to the occasion in this feud, but. It's still a little bit weird. 
Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. And, and we'll also get to some weirdness that something that ha- Cornet does later comes off as a little bit weird, but we'll get to that. Um, next, we get a quick video of the top five rankings, the same video we saw on the night before. Christopher Daniels, number five. Jimmy Rave, number four. Alex Shelley, number three. Kenta at number two, despite he, in fact, he's wrestled one match at Ring of Honor. Jay Lethal at number one. And that brings us to the second match on the card. Jimmy Yang, 0-3 in Ring of Honor, defeating number one contender Jay Lethal via pinfall in 11 minutes, six seconds after hitting the Yang time. Uh, J- Jeff, uh, I guess this was, this was, uh, Yang time also a sign of the times for Jay Lethal because th- this was, you know, they had him as number one in the rankings, but he was very rapidly being phased out at this point, Jay Lethal. Yeah. And I don't know if you guys remember the old Vikings coach, uh, Brad Childress. I do not. Like a, no. a standard science teacher, right? And he was a really good head coach as far as, like, managing an offense. But he would describe players that didn't fit with their team uh, in an interesting way. And I thought it was so perfect the way he he described Randy Moss, who was a Hall of Fame wide receiver, great football player. But he had come back to the Vikings, and he just wasn't working out. His attitude wasn't great didn't fit the culture. So Brad Childers called him a quote unquote programmatic non fit. And that is how I view Jimmy Yang in ring of honor. He is a programmatic non fit to the program. Uh, And Jay lethal just, you see that there's something there, but what that it, that there is, is not coming out in this match. Jimmy Yang's not the guy to bring it out. Um, I thought this was just a, a very, very mediocre wrestling match with zero investment for me as a fan. See, I, um, maybe this is because we've been like watching a lot of their performances lately, but I actually was a li- slightly pleasantly surprised by this match because I felt like this weekend was better in, in from just a personal Jimmy Yang performance standpoint than his other ring of honor shots so far. Even if some of the matches like the were, were technically better. I felt like he was trying a bit more here and I feel like Jay lethal, like he's still not an amazing heel, but I feel like, compared to his other earlier attempts at being a heel, he's slowly getting a little more comfortable. Like he does a couple things that are a little more loose, a little more on the fly. Like at one point he um, throws Yang into the front row and then the crowd chants on the other side chants over here. And, you know, Jay lethal is able to think on his feet and actually tease it, but then just throw Yang in the ring, you know, it's simple stuff like that, but it's stuff like, I don't know, don't know if he would have done that even two or three shows earlier in this heel run or like doing his spot he used to love to do where he would tell the crowd to be real quiet, do the shush, and then do a real loud chop. And he teases that here, but then he doesn't actually do it. So, you know, he's starting to play a bit more with the idea of I'm going to tease the crowd, get them up for things and take it away. Um, the match itself I thought was above average, but almost good. Not, not, not nothing special, but. Maybe because my expectations were so low, a little bit of a pleasant surprise. Um, you know, it, there's not no big story to it other than a little bit of lethal healing. Um, but I felt like they were trying, except for 
There was Yang in this match took maybe one of the worst suplexes I've ever seen a professional take where um I don't know what went wrong. Lethal goes to give him like a standard regulation vertical suplex. It was like Yang forgot it was happening and he barely put any effort to jump over. And it was so bad that the crowd actually booed and Lethal was like, what? It's a suplex. And I felt, I felt so bad for Lethal because he almost got like apologetic as the heel for that suplex. Um, Matt, what'd you think about this? I think I'm a little bit closer to Jeff on this. Um, you know, I'd say, you know, kind of like an average level match. Um, they just, they just didn't seem to have many ideas. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, you know, they were working. It's not like they were being lazy, but it didn't seem like there was like a, a theory of what this match was. Like, my favorite part of the match was probably they had a very aggressive collar and, collar and elbow tie up at the beginning. And I really enjoyed that. And after that, it was just kind of like, eh, this is just kind of there. Um, I will say this though, despite that, and maybe it was just because they were coming off a hot angle and because it was early in the show. The crowd was very into this. So I am, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, I, I was not the majority opinion here, but I, I just thought that this match was just, it was just not that interesting. And yeah, it was very obvious that the number one ranked member of the roster uh, in terms of title contention was not being very featured here. Second match on the show loses clean. To a guy who had not gotten a lot of wins at all prior, zero and three. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. This so first win. Yeah, other than the that one trios match that he was in. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was, and, and I agree with what what Jeff said about Yang. It's just, it's not like he wasn't trying, but he just didn't click with this style for whatever reason. But the crowd was very into him here. They were very into him. So yeah. you know, maybe that was maybe that was enough. I mean, they really wanted to love him. He had a great entrance, you know. Uh, you know, he had that um, James Gibson endorsement, and they, everyone had just seen James Gibson like be turn out to be probably like the best example of how good like a WWE guy can be on the Indies when they're really motivated. And it just, yeah, it just never clicked, unfortunately. And yes, like you were saying, Jeff, like sometimes the system, you know, it just does, or in this case, the promotion, it just does not fit somebody and for whatever reason it didn't it didn't click here but so um, I, I guess it, it brings up an interesting question though because you mentioned james gibson and obviously he set an incredible high bar like for wwe guys coming in and especially yang because he had that natural association with him yeah yeah three count and, and all that and 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 or young, young dragons young, young dragons young, yeah, yeah mix them up and uh you know, Jimmy Yang's coming in next, and you never want to be the guy that replaces the guy. Exactly. So, in a sense, Jimmy was kind of digging himself out of a hole from the get-go, which is not his fault by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I don't want to make it seem like he wasn't putting the effort in. I just think there is something to that Ring of Honor style that if you are coming from the WWE and you have to instantly flip that switch, it's not easy. Yeah, and especially like if you you've really if you don't have like a I mean, Gang was you know WCW and then right into WWE. Like you know, I, I it's different. I think for guys that kind of started out in Japan or the Indies for years and years and years, you know, as opposed to if you came up more in that system. You know, it, it, I, th- I think it could probably be harder to adjust. 
and then have to readjust too. In some cases, yeah. I mean, it's. I hate to like, and I, I've said this on our show too, you know, with Jimmy Yang, I don't want to sound like I'm out to get the guy. Cause I'm, I'm definitely not. Um, he had a, a really cool look and a good theme song and cool presentation. that was different from everybody else, but man, it was like trying to pull a, a car out of the mud sometimes with him. Yeah. And I think this is another match where, Jay Lethal had not been established enough to even matter. And then you got to pull Jimmy Yang up with you. I, I don't know, man. Like sunglasses and new music. That's cool for Jay Lethal, but did it make a difference? Nah. So at this point, we cut to a backstage hallway where from far away, we see Matt Seidel and AJ Styles talking. The camera zooms in on them, but we don't hear what they're saying. So I guess this is what Dave Prezak was alluding to earlier when he was like, keep the camera on Seidel so we can find out if he did or not. Except we realize now it's pointless because the camera never gets close enough to hear what they're saying. So we just know, oh, Matt Seidel is having conversations, but... Um, that brings us to, a, we, we, at this point, we cut to low key outside the building in the dark. Key says 2006 is when the Rottweilers are going to take over Ring of Honor, and it all starts tonight when he takes on Jack Evans. Key says he's going to use the match to send a message to Generation Next that when, what they hold dear is coming to the Rottweilers. Key proclaims 2006, the year of the dog, ends by saying, bow down, lean back, before I put two through you. So I got, I gotta say, like, I that's a very awkward catchphrase, but I still actually do think it's better than the his more famous one, which is it it is not the size of the fighter, but the size of the fight that he will bring, and all you can do is be ready. You know, that's a famous catchphrase, but that is pretty awkward in its own right. Bow down, lean back before I put two through you. You see, because it sounds like he's talking about bullets, but he actually means his feet. <laughs> yeah, and this this is the last uh, low key promo. Man, one of the memories of all the great low key promos we've heard. <laughs> but imagine if he had kept going with this with this catchphrase. What a legendary phrase catchphrase it would, would have be. Sold a hell of a lot of t shirts. That's right. Sure. Uh, but um, that brings us to delirious Sal Renaro and Tony Mamaluk defeating the Embassy of Abyss, Alex Shelley and Jimmy Rave. Via pinfall in fourteen twenty three, when Mama Luke used a roll up on Shelly and um, Renara was using a roll up at the same time on uh, on Rave, but it was not legal. But uh, yeah, this is the uh, the winning team from the Trios Tournament losing to kind of a slapdash thrown together team, and I actually like this as a match better than at least one of the three Trios Tournament matches we saw in the last show. Matt, maybe two of them. I actually thought this was fairly good. Two of them. I might have liked this better than the finals. Um, I thought this was a very simple match structure. Which it just had this match was basically like two little sections, but I thought each section was done right. Like the first section of this match is it's Delirious being the face in peril, and like what I mean is Delirious starts as the legal man, and I think for the first two thirds of this match, I think like the first almost ten minutes of this match, he does not tag out. It is just Delirious in most of this match. And, you know, he gets to run wild for a minute, he gets the best of Alex Shelley for a second, he crawls through his legs and then turns into a cradle when Alex Shelley tries to do it to him, which is like kind of a cute little Delirious spot. And then for a long time, Delirious gets beat down. But um, 
I actually thought, you know, in a lot of matches that would be boring, but I felt like the embassy did a good job of tagging in and out frequently and doing like an, enough. The offense was engaging enough and Delirious got enough hope spots here or there that I never got bored during it. There was a great spot where, um, the ref is distracted and Nana and ha- Daisy Hayes get involved with interference. And then when like Shelly turns back, he clearly knows interference has happened. And Shelly makes this huge production going, what happened? Like when, when, when Nana choked Delirious, I just, Alex Shelly is just such a great, like smarmy heel. He, he, every, every show lately, he's does little things like that, which I just love. Uh, you know, Delirious again, gets a spot here or there. I like, he gets a little face off with Abyss where he just does the delirious act to Abyss. is kind of dumbfounded. He even bites Abyss's hand, but eventually Abyss just destroys him. Eventually with the, we get the hot tag. And then the final third of this match is just like back and forth, fun kind of action-y sprint, where it's just guys doing moves. It's kind of what you want in a, after a big, long face beat down. And um, we get some uh, dissension at the end of the match. Hence the name of the show. We, uh, the titular yeah. line. Yeah, it, 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 it gets the faces of win in the most slip on a banana peel way um, imaginable because Abyss absolutely destroys the faces three on one, just like the night before. And just like the night before, he teases a dive to the floor when Shelly stops him by blind tagging himself in. But this time, Jimmy Rave gets in. He's pissed off that, you know, Shelly is doing this. They get into a long extended in-ring argument. Delirious drags Abyss to the floor. And then Mamaluke and Shelly, I mean, Mamaluke and Sal sneak up, do the double roll up for the win on, uh, Rave and Shelly. And it was funny to hear the announcers call this an upset win for Sal and Mamaluke because it was based on the way they're booked, but they were recently tag team champions and they're talking like anytime they win is this huge upset, but in a way it kind of is. But I, I, I thought this was a good match. I, I enjoyed this a fair bit. Again, it's nothing fancy, but it's just like a good, simple structure. And I really like the embassy in these kind of tag matches. But Matt, from your incredulous reaction, when I said I might have liked this better than two of the six minutes on the last show, I have a feeling you're not as high on this match as I am. I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was was pretty good. I you know I suppose, but I, I you know I also liked the trios tournament matches. I guess more than you because I thought this was about as good as the worst of those, um, which is still good. Um, so I don't think it was you know bad or anything. I don't think it was anywhere close to the best two of those um, trios matches. But uh, you know I always enjoy Rave and Shelly and Abyss together. You know Abyss is really great in his role coming in for the spots that he comes in for, you know, Raven Shelley play off each other. Well, Shelley has just been on a roll in terms of just these really fun heel performances. Do you ever notice in these embassy matches that Shelley loves doing that pyramid embassy hand symbol way more than Raven and Nana do like, Raven and Nana very rarely do that. And Shelley just does it all the time. And then Abyss does it every time Shelley does it. Is this just me? Does, does Shelly, did Shelly particularly like that hand sign? I, I think that's just a, a good uh, like example of just Shelly in general, where he really is full into this in a way I think that even Raven Nana aren't. Like he's really deep into enjoying playing this guy. I yeah. always thought he thought it was an A for Alex. That makes some sense. Into it. Makes some sense. I guess I never thought of that. B. Thinking outside the box. Um, it makes yeah. a lot of sense. I mean, it would make sense for why Shelly in particular does it a lot. The reason I thought it was an embassy sign was because he did it when he 
when he announced that he was joining the embassy. And I don't even remember if I had seen it before then. Um, and I remember then, then like the whole embassy did it. I think like Cruel was there and he did it with them and Fast Eddie. And then I was like, okay, but this is going to be their thing. But then it really was just Shelly's thing. Anyway, you skipped over something very important, Trevor, which is Sal Renaro slipping on the entrance ramp when he. I was gonna... <laughs> I, I know, uh, you know, uh, Jeff and, and Shane are friends with Sal and had him on the show for an episode. And I was going to use that as my way to get to Jeff. I felt like, how bad did you feel for poor Sal? Slipping and wiping out on the entranceway, and it's it's great too because you can see Mama Luke like not see it happen, and he just turns and sees that uh, Sal's on his ass. He's like, "What the heck?" But Sal is also just like really like playing it up. Like he just sits there, just like he shakes his head. He's like, "I can't fucking believe I did this." It's not as bad as Ultimo Dragon slipping at WrestleMania twenty in his like only WrestleMania appearance, but. Man, Sal is just like, he's just like, yep, not going to play this off. I'm just going to lean right into this. I slipped on my ass. And, you know, well, go ahead, Jeff, because I know you probably have thoughts on poor Sal. I just want to say something with Sal. Like, this this is a guy that I have been watching now for 23 years, I do believe. Um, And... He has mastered every single solitary style of character from a cocky heel to a happy-go-lucky babyface to the heartthrob character to the nutcase that he's doing now. Um, but this is the most authentic version of Sal Renaro that you can find. The goofball that falls and then just completely makes the absolute best out of it. That is the truest form of Sal Renaro. And for the people that have never met or seen Sal in the ring, um, he is an incredible wrestler that unfortunately just never got the chance. Or when he did get a chance to do something, he was kind of pigeonholed into being a short-term guy. Or a quick I feel hit. like... I feel like he's the kind of guy where anyone that really watches him, like no one like is like he's a bad wrestler, but they almost like he just gets taken for granted. You just, you know, like he's the kind of good that you just go, oh yeah, he's good, but you never like he's like he's a good like he's like he's a good hand, but they don't really give him the chance to to have the spotlight. Yep, hundred percent. Um, I I think there is a gluttony of those kind of guys that have come through Ring of Honor over the years. Sal just happens to be one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Getting to see him work opposite of Jimmy Rave is also important because those two were best of friends. And I think that is also something that, you know, obviously, like, you know, the camera's never going to be on Jimmy Rave when Sal's making an ass of himself. But I have no doubt wherever Jimmy was at that point, like, Jimmy's probably not able to contain himself. <laughs> um, yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy Rave never breaks character during this era, so it would have been interesting to see. Like, just watch him guess, inside if, the ring. If, if they'd have gotten him, he'd, he'd have lost it. He'd have broken. I, but, I, I can almost guarantee he'd have broken. 
But the other question, Jeff, beyond uh, what you think about the match is uh, someone in, in addition to the toilet paper being thrown in, as is now custom with Jimmy Ray, someone threw a teddy bear into the ring during this entrance and uh, Abyss ends up grabbing the teddy bear. And I was like, who brought a teddy bear to the ring to throw I mean, to the match show? Like, I mean, was that you? It was not me. Uh, there's only one man in this building this night that I could think that possibly would have thought, oh, I'm going to throw a teddy bear at Abyss. And that is Chandler Biggins, yeah. who is the greatest heckler in the history of wrestling hecklers. Um, that's how he got his first like booking, was they didn't want him in the crowd ruining the show, so they put him on the show. Um, someone literally told me that this week and I, and I felt relieved because I feel even on the last Cleveland show, uh, I, which you were on, I talked about how like, oh, like I, I that's when I discovered that the heckler of these Cleveland shows was Chandler Biggins. I was like, man, there was some guy who just wouldn't shut up. And you were like, yeah, that's Chandler Biggins. So when someone told me this week, well, even Chandler would admit like he was insufferable and that's how he got a job. I was like, oh, I don't feel so bad now for saying that. Well, you know, I was just uh, – besides that, I was just thinking if they had ever given a chance to Jimmy Rave to be a babyface in ROH, they could have made that a thing where the crowd, instead of toilet paper, they throw teddy bears at him at every show. Just a sea <laughs> of teddy bears. Awesome. Would have been awesome. And, you know, I just interviewed Kayla Guffey, Jimmy Rave's daughter, for an honorable mention – uh, I think it's episode 201, and, um, you know, she talked about how with her dad presenting the serious side in wrestling, but at home he was the fun-loving happy guy, and I don't, I, I honestly can't recall more than maybe two or three times off the top of my head, there's probably more I just am not remembering, that he actually, you know, socialized and went to after parties. He protected that character so well and didn't let a whole lot of people see the the funny, goofy side of Jimmy Rave. Jimmy Rave was a total goofball. Like, Sal Renaro's personality that you see here is Jimmy's personality in real life. Yeah, and the thing is, and never know that. Yeah, the thing is, and and the thing is, Jimmy was obviously so great in this role, but. I'd say most wrestlers really find their greatest success when they get to be themselves at least at least somewhat. So it would have been interesting to see if on like a big stage they sort of gave him the chance to be something closer to his true self. Well, in this match I think is a, a very good example. It may not be the perfect example, but it's a great example of the dynamic between Shelley and Rave, how they play off of each other. Um like the spot where uh, Shelly lands on Jimmy's groin after he trips or something like that. Uh, or no, Jimmy goes into Shelly's crotch is what happens um, after a drop toe hold uh, from Delirious. And then Delirious hits the panic attack on both of them. That like singular sequence, that is a Jimmy Rave special. Guaranteed because it's Jimmy being a goofball. Oh, I'll follow my partner's crotch. Ha ha ha. Like, that's something Jimmy Rave would do because he thinks it's funny. Not because it necessarily fit with the match, but it fit into the dynamic of dissension. And it fit <laughs> into the dynamic of Rave and Shelly are not getting along. Rave needs to be the goof and to be made to look a fool because that's his character, even though he's the crown jewel. Shelly sells that kind of stuff 
better than probably anybody in the whole company. And then you have this monster abyss to play off of. I, I think it's just that trio is the best embassy trio. And I know people argue, oh, well, Spanky is the third man to Raven Shelley was the best or I can, we can confirm that was not Spanky. That was the best. That, I mean, th- that was not that good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that was a one show thing, maybe two shows at the most. And it didn't, didn't fit the best. I, I'm hit or miss on that, but like abyss is such a great contrast to Raven Shelley's goofiness with no goofiness at all. They, it just fit in so well, and it's really a shame that this trio didn't get the chance to, you know, really go on like a major run. And, yeah, Abyss, uh, Abyss is done right after this. Yeah, this is yeah. it for this is it for him in ROH he forever, still right? Owed a Ring of Honor World Title shot. Yeah, you guys, you you guys always bring that up on the podcast. That's like that. Uh, yeah, because the winning the trios tournament, everyone in the trios tournament was supposed to get to book one match, whatever they want. This this is a this is final Ring of Honor match. In fact, I, I have some notes on it. And the story, you know, sometimes we get into these stories and there's like great stories about like why someone left. You know, we're gonna get to the low key one in a little bit. The Abyss one seems very simple and no drama. Um The Observer wrote at the time, Abyss pulled out of Ring of Honor because he wanted to be used higher on the cards. Gave the pulse. He didn't want another TNA guy in his top singles mix while recognizing Abyss was top talent. Then the torch would write. TNA wrestler Abyss gave his notice to Ring of Honor. He was unhappy with his push, but Ring of Honor booker Gabe Zapolsky was hesitant to push him hard, due in part to the fact that TNA could pull him at any time. Says one wrestler about the Abyss departure for Ring of Honor, quote, As far as Abyss goes, it seemed to be an amicable parting. I think he was a little dissatisfied with how he was being used in Ring of Honor. And on the flip side, Ring of Honor is trying to be careful on how they strict, they use strictly TNA talent right now. Both sides understand and respect the other's position, and I'm sure the door will be open for him to return when the time is right. Which, well, he, which he never, ever does, yeah, right? The time is never right, apparently. But it does sound very much like you can see both sides. Although, quite frankly, Abyss being mad about his position, like, they had just started booking him, so I like I don't know if he expected to be pushed to the top right away, but um, I think he probably realized that there was that wasn't in the cards at all. Yeah, like he I he mean, was just being used as like to just like for tag matches with the embassy to be the heavy, yeah. like you know, which I think you know the writing's on the wall there pretty quickly. Yeah. But but this is a story we're going to see throughout 2006, which is especially once the events of the next show we're going to cover happen. Gabe gets very careful about the idea of i can't rely too much on tna talent because they can be pulled at a moment's notice and there will still be certain tna talent he will use because just they mean so much to ring of honor like Samoa joe but you can see why he would not want to push like make the top third of his card be a whole bunch of tna guys because if the day ever came where tna decided oh we changed our mind we don't want them in ring of honor anymore Ring of Honor would be kind of fucked. So. Which is which is sad, but also it g- helped give Ring of Honor its own identity, which I think was as important as anything. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because you know, nobody's ever really gone on record from the TNA or the ROH side, for that matter, to talk about the you know feud, so to speak, between the two sides and who was getting credit for who and, you know, TNA pulling talent and, and not really caring that they were booked and paid for, you know, for ring of honor, like they did in long Island. Um, I don't know. I, I have reached out to Dixie Carter to have her on the pod. 
Um, I've reached out to Jeff Jarrett to have him on the pod and share his side of things. I've asked Gabe. Uh, I think you guys all know what the answer from all three of them have been. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's such a, a fascinating topic to me. Maybe the most fascinating topic from this era that, that I would want to ask about if I could sit down with Gabe or sit down with Jeff Jarrett or Dixie Carter, um, or Jeremy Borash, for that matter. I think he would probably have an idea of what some of the politics and stuff were around that point. Um, I don't really have any, like, storylines or characters or, like, why did you do this or why didn't you do that? I want to know about the ROH-TNA feud of pettiness, if you will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's something we'll, Matt and I will have to get into a lot more on the next show, but... Um... For this show, after the match, uh, Sal and Tony and Delirious celebrate at ringside for a long time. I wrote my notes, like, almost too much to the point where you're like, okay, you've won a match, but you didn't win anything of value, and you were kind of dead until the heels got into a literal extended mid-ring argument. Like, they're, they're, they're celebrating this match like they won the Super Bowl. Um in kind of a neat move, though, I thought Mamaluke does the embassy pyramid hand or a whatever it is hand gesture, but then he turns into almost like a cross chop, cross chop. He like puts it over his groin. I thought, oh, that's cute in a way. <laughs> and uh, the faces leave. The embassy are still in the ring. Rave and and um, Shelly are still beefing with each other. Eventually, though, Shelly and Rave shake. So they, you know, it's dissension, but not a split. It's yeah, I, I like that. They they don't go overboard with it. It's just the yeah. right amount of dissension before they each have their title shots. But it's not like the embassy is shattering apart. And that brings us to the final match, Matt. This is emotional almost. It's <laughs> it's the final low-key. We've watched now every low-key match in Ring of Honor. We've reviewed them all. We've rewatched them all. Low-key defe- defeats Jack Evans via pinfall in 12 minutes, 33 seconds after he hit the Tree of Woe double stomp. So I feel like we should do this in three things. I'm going to – we'll cover the match. Then, Jeff, I want to ask you about a story you have about that you've covered on your show about maybe something you've heard that happened backstage before the show. And then I think, Matt, especially you and I, but Jeff, you can chime in, of course, too. Like, guess just give our overall thoughts on Loki since, you know, this is the last time Matt and I, you guys jump around in time on honorable mention, so you'll get to talk about them whenever you guys all feel like. But Matt and I, after today, like, this is, this is it for us. But Matt, what do you think about, here we are, Jack Evans, Loki. This is, it's weird. This of all things is Loki's final match ever to this day in Ring of Honor. You know, uh, on paper, it, this match feels like a dream match. You know, I feel like the vibe is fun at the beginning. Evan just tries to start a Jack's going to kill you chant, which is, you know, which is cute. They do not go with it. Um, and then at one point, like, Jack starts the match by, quote, serving Loki and then asking if he should serve him again. And it's funny because, like, even though the crowd is pro Jack Evans, they only sort of oblige. They're not like, yeah, serve him again. In fact, one guy yells, that shit went out with the Jerry curl, which is, it must have been, must have been Biggins, right? Who probably said that. I, I would guess. Yeah. Uh, that one, I couldn't tell with the voice, but I do remember that. Yeah. Vividly. And then, um, so, you know, I, I, so the opening start in the match, the opening spot in the match was Jack doing his second break dance and Loki just kicking him while he's like upside down mid dance, which I thought was a really great way to start the match. And there was some great brutalizing of Evans here, but I feel like 
at a certain point, the match sort of gets joyless. Like, if you watch the Brian Danielson squashes of Jack Evans, like, you know, it's very Danielson dominant. But it's also, like, fun. You know, Danielson is having a good time. Jack, you know, take stretches in all sorts of different directions. And it's, like, the, you know, a lot of different spots for the crowd. Here, Loki is just very dour, as he was. And, you know, slow. And he does his, like, he's waist lock and his reverse bear hug thing on the mat. It's not super exciting. He's acting very lackadaisical and disrespectful toward Evans. I mean, all of it makes sense from a character point of view. But Jack doesn't get quite enough hope spots for me. Like, he should get a couple. Like, uh, like more than, more than this. Like, he, he does, and the ones that he does are fine. You know, he, he, he catches Key's kick and sweeps the leg and hits a twisting standing press for two. He, he goes up for the 630. Um, but, you know, he misses that. Um, and, you know, Loki really just gets a very clean win. It's not like even like a miss or something. Like, Loki just puts him in the trio woe, gets on top. Hits the double stomp, wins the match. Um, I just feel like this match could have been done with a little bit more of an entertaining spirit. Like, I get that you want to get Loki over as a as a killer, and you know I don't even know what they were going for at this point, of what they knew they, what their plans were with Loki. If they even by the time this match got to the ring, were they already had they already decided that was it for him? But it was just like. It was just just too dry for who these guys are. Like it, the story makes sense. I just think it it muted what makes Jack Evans matches fun. Like it felt like after maybe the first half, it felt like Loki could have been squashing everyone. I, I, I think any anyone, excuse me. And I think that's what I was disappointed in. Like as it was, it wasn't bad. Everything looked fine, but I just was hoping for a little bit more. I guess entertainment out of the match. Yeah, Jeff, do you agree with that? I, I actually would uh, 100% agree with that. Um, you know, the legacy of low-key is these hard-hitting, intense, you know, visceral matches. You know, the ones with Brian and Daniels and Joe and, you know, some of the tags with Homicide as his partner and the the big kick to Dan Moth and the Aries matches you know, I know there were some high hopes for what Loki versus Roderick Strong would look like in Long Island. And unfortunately, this is a flatter than a pancake match for me. Um, it was nothing that anywhere near what I expected. Um, and, and I, too, uh, much like Matt, thought of the Danielson, Jack Evans matches, uh, both the two that were in ROH and I believe one in PWG by this point. Um, or maybe I have that backwards. Um, there's no fun to this. Uh, it was just a 12 minute extended low key squash. And I don't think the crowd really knew what to do with it. And you know, Jack could have made it fun if he was allowed to. Yeah, yeah, like I agree with both of you guys. Like, especially Matt. Like, like I agree. This is kind of a dream match on paper because you've got like one of the great ass kickers of all time and one of the great guys at taking ass kickings of all time. You feel like this is like a match made in heaven. But he, I feel like Jack Evans singles matches at this point in his career when he still he would get a little more well rounded. Like at this point, whenever you saw Jack in a singles match in this era, it was great if it was one of two things. It was either like 
his opponent finding like really fun ways to beat him up and stretch him like in those Danielson matches and a lot like unique like ways to really just kick his ass and have him take crazy bumps or like you do a match where Jack Evans actually gets a surprising amount of offense where he kind of uses his flying and speed to to actually like kind of surprise the guy even though he's the always the underdog and this match I feel like you didn't get enough of either like yeah Jack Evans gets a little bit of offense but a lot of the offense is like him fighting back with forearms, which is not not the thing you want to see from Jack Evans. It's not a strong point. And yet, like the low key, like there are a couple cool spots. Like you said, Matt, the uh the the drop kick right during the breakdance and that spot where he grabs Jack and like runs halfway across the ringside and smashes him into the barricade. That was cool. But for the most part, yeah, it was low key being more methodical and you have like one of the best bumpers and, and most flexible flexible guys in all of wrestling. And he just kind of does the methodical, like, gangsta key, body vice, slow offense. And, you know, for and you never once watching this match feel like Jack Evans has a chance to win. Like, And so it's really a very squashy-feeling squash. But at 12 minutes, there's a reason why most squashes aren't 12 minutes. Like, if you're going to go that methodical and that dominant – you probably should have cut a few minutes from it. But all that said, there are still fun moments. I thought Jack Evans selling was great in this. Like in those body vices, he's acting like he's out of breath. Like just maybe that was legit. Who knows? But like, yeah, I was going to say, I don't know how much of that is selling. And how much of that is smoking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Jack Evans, like you would see him smoking outside of these shows yeah. a lot. Either way, it comes off great. You know, he does still sell, you know, you know, he sells. Jack Evans is great at selling that his ass is getting kicked, maybe because sometimes it really was getting kicked. But yeah, I actually probably like this a little bit more than each of you guys, but I still agree. It's way below. Like, I think this is outright kind of good, but just still way. You would think on paper, these guys could do something really incredibly memorable and they don't. But um, after the match, Dave Prezak tries to sell this for Jack Evans. He he says on commentary, it's a it's a moral victory that Jack Evans is even conscious. And I was like, boy, that that, that is clutching at straws to be like, you know, it's a win for Jack Evans because Loki did not knock him unconscious. But um, this would be Loki's uh last match ever to this day in Ring of Honor, and uh, we'll get into why the the wrestling reporters, the big two, Dave and Wade said it was they have like differing opinions but we actually have someone on the show if you listen to an honorable mention their episode on dissension he goes into some great detail but like jeff you were one of the rare people that got to overhear an argument loki was having with gabe at the show now i don't know is this the singular argument that got them or just one of many i could imagine that could be but just for the listeners like what did you overhear between these two so I'm going to assume it was one of many. Yeah. And it was not a final, like, you know, uh, you're fired, go do your match tonight and get the fuck out of here. Um, but there was definitely a, a, a shouting match between the two of them. Carrie Silken went over and intervened. I was standing there with Jack Evans. Um, I think he was waiting to actually talk to Loki about what they were going to do. And... I, for some reason, I I told you guys before we started taping, I thought Hero was there, but maybe it wasn't. Um, Ares was, was within the vicinity as well. And uh, I was just waiting for the next set of chairs to go 
throw up, uh, you know, around the front row area there. And um, they were having it, having it out, you know, back in, in kind of the corner of the room, um, you know, without the setup. It's all just one big giant room. And then they curtain off, you know, around the, the entrance ramp and, and wherever else needs blacked out. But, um, yeah, it was pretty loud. I would say anybody that was in that room at that time probably heard snippets of what was said. Um, it's hard to decipher specifically what the actual argument was about, who started it, or how it started. Uh, voices were raised, and we know how Gabe is when he is screaming. And if you imagine Low Key doing, I'm Low Key, you know, how, how that sounds when he would be screaming, it was really quite comical, uh, even though there's nothing funny about, you know, arguing with your boss. Yeah, and uh, we get to the reporting, and they. Uh, this is one of those moments I love. I have to go back and read the newsletters where, like, the two newsletters do not acknowledge each other by name, but they're basically like kind of arguing through the newsletters because we're going to go back and forth between the Observer and the Torch here. Uh, first, the Observer wrote at the time. Dave wrote, "Loki asked for a raise after being booked in several main events over the next few months. When they didn't acquiesce to the raise, he pulled out and decided against fulfilling his advertised dates." Gabe Sapolsky said he now categorizes Loki in the same category as Teddy Hart, as talented guys he is never going to use again unless it's a life-or-death situation. He said Loki was only brought back because they felt they needed the best workers they could to keep the company from collapsing after the Rob Feinstein scandal in 2004. Even so, he had not featured Loki as a singles, mainly using him in tag matches in the middle, and only did one major program with him, Loki and Homicide versus Jay Lethal and Samoa Joe. After this Kenta match was so strong, Sapolsky felt he could trust Loki and was going to use him as a top singles guy in the title hunt mix. He was asked to sign a contract for rights to use his footage and send the tapes overseas, and he stalled on it. And someone made a remark of how much he was getting paid, and others heard, and he got mad that the figure was out in front of the other wrestlers. There were always underlying problems between Sapolsky and Loki, because in the past, Loki wouldn't do jobs, and that led to their first split. This means the plan for the April 22nd 100th ROH show, which is going to be a rematch from show one with Loki versus Brian Danielson versus Christopher Daniels, is now off. The problem was purely financial, Loki demanding a raise and refusing to work his all-raise scheduled upon dates, including key ones, without it. There were no issues whatsoever regarding problems doing finishes, even those who don't like Sapolsky feel Loki handled it wrong by not at least fulfilling his agreed-upon and advertised final dates. So... That's Dave's thing, which is all money, nothing to do with booking. Now we go to the torch. Wade would write, Loki has canceled all his bookings and has parted ways with Ring of Honor. Ring of Honor and Loki had a major business impasse, which is rumored to be that he refused to do a job for Roderick Strong at an upcoming Ring of Honor event after Ring of Honor set the stage for a feud between them at their recent double shot in Cleveland and Dayton. Loki has also been in talks with TNA, so he may have played hardball knowing he had a fallback plan. Gabe Sapolsky issued a statement on the Ring of Honor message board regarding the departure of Loki, quote, there's been a disagreement in business arrangements between Loki and Ring of Honor management, he said. Loki has canceled all his Ring of Honor bookings as stated in a headline at lowkey.com. We will announce new matches for the ones that Loki has already been advertised in the next week. This will mark the end of Loki and Ring of Honor. We are sorry things turned out this way and apologize to Ring of Honor fans for the lineup changes. 
So now we go back to the Observer. This is where we play the, the back and forth game. Dave writes, there is no truth to any reports that Loki's split with Ring of Honor had to do with refusing to put over Roderick Strong on the February 11th show. It was a totally financial decision. Then we go back to the torch. And Sapolsky tells the Torch that he and Loki agreed not to talk publicly about the exact circumstances of their falling out. Quote, I'm very disappointed and disgusted and disappointed with how everything went. I wish that he would uh, he would make the main events he had agreed to. And if we wanted to stop doing business at that point, we could have at that point. End quote. So, yeah, who, I mean, you got one side saying... It's nothing but low-key wad, more money. You got another side saying he didn't want a job. So my question is, if it's not Gabe who's feeding that information to Dave, because it seemed like that's where Dave was getting most of his ROH stuff from, who from ROH was talking to Dave? I, I will uh, say... <laughs> I, uh, I will was it you, Jeff? <laughs> it was not me, but I, I do know specifically who. Uh, I don't think it's my place to yeah. say a name, but... It's not somebody everybody knows. Um, I think I have a guess, but I also will not say. Yeah, I, I would prefer we, we, we keep that one on the, yeah. the kayfabe side just for... Let's just say there is a possible world where both sides are right in the sense of there's it's been far from unheard of in wrestling for a guy to be like, I won't lose that guy unless you pay me more money. Like, there is a world where each side could then interpret what that means. Like, you know, Loki was a guy who was known for not wanting to job, so he might have been said, like, I will job to Roderick Strong, but since I'm jobbing, I would like a higher price for that, and then I could see Ring of Honor Balkan going, well, we already agreed to this, and it would not be the first time in Ring of Honor history or in Loki history that he agreed to do a job or kind of at least inferred he would and then maybe had reservations of it as we got closer to showtime. So um, either way, you know, it is sad that it ended. And it is sad as those notes mentioned, it seemed like low key was like starting to be in started was going to be in line for a push. I mean, they were booking him for, um, you know, that three way rematch for the hundredth show. I believe the best in the world match, which was um, Daniels and no, it was Samoa Joe and Brian Danielson versus uh, Kenta and Marafuji. I believe that was originally supposed to be Joe and Danielson versus Christopher Daniels and Low Key. So like he was being booked, and 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 the Roderick Strong match was going to be on the very next show already announced. So like he was being booked in major matches on the next like top of the card matches, and I, I think it was interesting that that part of the torch too because. We should mention Loki does end up in TNA very shortly after this. And I, you know, there's no confirmation, but that is an interesting theory. The torch floats, which is the idea of maybe Loki thought he could play hardball now because he thought, well, I'm going to impact. So like if, if, um, you know, ring of honor doesn't want to give me a raise, I've got this other job. I'm going to be able to fall back on anyway. Like who knows, who knows what goes through the mind of Loki. I'll point out one thing too. Yeah, regarding Gabe and Loki in general, you know, Gabe used Loki a couple times with Evolve and Dragon Gate USA and, and whatever you know various entities were there. Ring of Honor and Kerry Silken never used Loki ever again. Yeah, I mean, this so, is a guy who was the first champion who has been available for much of the last sixteen years. Correct. So, like, yeah, clearly he burned. I mean. That I mean, I guess that we can go into now, like, summing up Loki's career. I would just say, like, to me, that is a huge part of Loki's le- legacy. Because to me, 
having rewatched everything Loki did in Ring of Honor and just watching a bunch of Loki in general, like Loki's never going to get the credit he deserves because he's burned so many bridges. Like guys, we, we've seen with Ring of Honor, guys like Danielson, guys like Joe, guys like Punk, they get a lot of credit that they richly deserve. But I think it's in part because they all had major league runs and promotions where guys like Homicide and Low Key and Nigel McGuinness, you know, guys like that who were also huge parts of Ring of Honor, you know, they, they never get as fondly remembered or as frequently talked about because they didn't get that one big major stage run that kind of gets more people to check out their earlier work. And I feel like Low Key, his best stuff, like, when he's at his best, he is on the level of Danielson of this era, of Joe on this era. I think he is that good. I feel like he is a first no-brainer ballot to a Ring of Honor Hall of Fame. He is a no-brainer inductee to the Indie Wrestling Hall of Fame that just started last year. Um, if you go back and watch, like he was the guy that Ring of Honor was built on for like the first eight months or so. You know, every show he was like the DVD selling match. Every show up till. I think probably the first unscripted was the first time that he was not the DVD selling match. And then a show or two later, he's back in it again with um, Samoa Joe. You know, that was the DVD selling match of the first glory by honor. And he was just an incredible talent. And I think it's a, to me, it's a testament to Loki's talent that he's worked pretty much every major promotion in America, Japan, and as a testament to how much of a pain in the ass he is that he never really had a great, like the run you would think he'd be capable of pretty much anywhere. Like, and he left so many of them on bad terms. Like to me, those things go hand in hand. Like they're equal parts of his legacy. He's an incredible talent. And he is a guy that really talked himself out of a lot of opportunities, I think. But Matt, I mean, you've been on this journey side by side with me. Like, how do you feel now that this is the end of low key for us? Well, I mean, I, I think that probably to this day, his most celebrated run of his entire career was that first, you know, eight or nine months of ROH. Like, I, I don't think he's had a run since then. You know, not that he hasn't been great. And he, you know, he's obviously had good runs in Japan and he's been in WWE and he's been in TNA and he's been in many different independent promotions in America and, you know, and, and throughout the world. But I don't think he ever had another run where people were just talking about it and just like, did you see this match? Did you see this match? You got to see this match over and over again, the way it was in 2002 ROH. And like, you know, I could have told you that before we did this podcast. Like those matches are super memorable. The match with Joe, the, obviously the, the matches, the match on the first show, the three way, the, the match with Danielson to this day is very, very, very high on my list of all time. Greatest ROH matches, maybe like top five, maybe even top three, like to this day. Um, you know, great matches with AJ Styles, the mat, the match with Red, the four way of crowning a champion, you know, all those things. Like, but like, I knew all that. So my question for you, Trevor, um, is there anything that surprises you looking back now that you've rewatched all of Loki and ROH? Because I have a couple things, but does any, does any, that, uh, anything for you? I think what surprised me is how inessential, like how important Loki was for those first whatever months and then how inessential he is almost immediately like someone flicked a switch because like i would say if someone said what do you that never watched low key in ring of honor like what do i need to see what's the essential low key in ring of honor i would say probably literally every match he worked in ring of honor from the first show to glory by honor minus the xavier match 
every match was like the DVD selling match of that show, and it was like a great match. And a handful in 2003 also, the the, the uh, first anniversary, the uh, Revenge on the Prophecy, even that match with Jody Fleisch was really good. But I would say really, though, if essential matches from other than those first seven or eight months, I would say the three-way from the first anniversary show with Paul London and AJ Styles, I'd say the first Jay Lethal match, I think that was at Midnight Express Reunion where he really gets into it with Jay Lethal's mom, which was a really cool and like probably the best example of heel low-key when it all works. And then the Kenta match, like really most of the best stuff I think he did is that first run where he was like the star of the promotion. I'd add, I'd add, I'd add two more. Uh, I mean, you could, but I think the point still remains. Yeah. Like once he starts, he's not the the man anymore. And one, you know, and he's in and out of the company and then he goes into the heel run. Like he's never bad, but he went from being a guy who was like pumping out amazing matches every show to just, a guy with a with an odd highlight here or there. Like I feel like that Kenta match we saw recently, we rewatched for Final Battle. It was like I mentioned on that show. It was so frustrating watching that because it reminds you, like heel low key. I appreciate. I don't love. Like I appreciate the paring down of the offense and the changing of his style in some ways. But when you see him be low key with the chains off against that Kenta match, and you realize how many matches we were deprived of that. Like, it, it's not worth it. it. It wasn't worth it, you know? And it, it, it's kind of frustrating that we never got more of the first year low-key ever again in Ring of Honor. I assume we would have at some point. But the, the, So I, I feel similar, maybe a slightly different, but similar. So the two matches that I was going to say I, will, I would add to that essential list, the uh, low-key and Homicide versus Jay Lethal and Samoa Joe from Punk, the final chapter, oh, yeah. that brawl... In the match and the post-match ball, one of the best things that ROH did that entire year. I think that's absolutely essential. And the Kobashi and, uh, Kobashi and Homicide against Joe and Loki match. I also would think, you know, that was a really fantastic match. Like, I, I found, I feel like the thing that surprised me, cause, you know, 2002 Loki didn't surprise me. Like, he was amazing. The matches were amazing. I liked Gangsta Key better at the time than I do on rewatch. And I think it's because he just took it a little too far, like the slowing down, like the, to the point where there were a bunch of boring matches. I think he did best when he had Homicide with him. So like, you know, and playing off that dynamic with Homicide and him together, I thought was really excellent. I thought he definitely had an amazing presence. Um, but yeah, I think that his his best stuff was when he was with Homicide or when he was kind of reverting back to more like Japan low-key, like in the Kobashi and the Kenta matches. I think that, I think he could have done more with that character to sort of strike a balance between being a heel and just being super, super methodical. Um, You know, and like, I appreciate his commitment to it. He really was committed to making that character a heel. And I... um, I just I don't think it always translated to great matches. I but I I will say this: the matches that we lost from like him leaving, but the strong match, the tag match you mentioned, the three way rematch, I think those could have been sort of like a renaissance for Loki. You know, finding that new version of his character. I I, I had very high hopes for that Roderick Strong match. I was very excited for that. Um, we never got key Joe, to, which yeah. to this day is just infuriating. Would it have been Would it have been disappointing though if that with that version of Loki? Now looking back, you know, it depends on how much Loki was willing to let loose 
in that match against Joe. Because that sequence they did in the four-way at the second anniversary was awesome. And if they did a whole match like that, I'd have been all in. But if they had just done... Yeah, sorry. And the Manhattan Dam tag, I was going to say. They were good together in that, too. Yeah. I mean, they definitely are great together when they want to be. I don't know. Jeff, do you... like What what do you feel about Loki in each of those eras? So, to me, the perfect version of Loki would have been some some of early days Loki meeting Gangsta Key in the middle. Um, yeah. The edge that Gangsta Key provided to me was essential to Loki that just, I don't know, the fear that he gave off. Yes, uh, I agree. Especially live. You know, that, that he would have, yeah, he had a much bigger presence than his actual size. And that is very, very rare. I I can say what I want about Austin Aries, the person, and, and some of the things he's done in recent years, but Aries in, in the early days in Ring of Honor very much had the, I'm not five foot seven. I'm actually six foot eight. Look at how I carry myself. Low-key is the definition of a guy that was bigger than. And you can, you guys named all the matches. I mean, his career, his run in Ring of Honor with the, the breaks in between and quitting or being fired and all the various, you know, internet rumors you'd like to, to name. Um, you can't take away the three way from Arab Honor Begins. You can't take away the Danielson match from Round Robin Challenge. You can't take away the Joe match from. Uh, Glory by Honor. Um, just like you can't take away the tag match from Punk the Final Chapter, which I'm so glad you mentioned. Um, you cannot take away this match, his final match in Ring of Honor, uh, for what it meant. Uh, not just that it was, you know, Loki's last match, but really this could have been the start of a very big story for 2006 Ring of Honor that instead the CGW thing became bigger than it was supposed to be, and Gen Next and the Rottweilers didn't go this direction. Um, to me, Loki will will be essential to what Ring of Honor became. Uh, his time in Ring of Honor may have been relatively short, considering the promotion's 20 years old, but that does not in any way, shape, or form lessen the impact that he had, nor does it take away from all of the problems that he also created for himself. Yeah, like, to me, what I think low-key is, like, the analogy I would say is, like, people weren't around at the time, like, like when I was reading, like, the Death Valley driver message where I was a young teenager, like, uh, reading about all these indie wrestlers that I had never seen up to that point, like, Low-key and Brian Danielson were, like, hand-in-hand seen as, like, the two kings. And well, you're making me feel old, Trevor, because when I was reading about Low-key by then, I was an old teenager. <laughs> I was probably I'm, – I'm probably trying to fudge it just to feel good about myself. But um, but I, what I would say, like, Low-key, it was, like, Low-key in the era – of this era, like, and, and to, from like 2001 on or whatever, it was like he and Samoa Joe and Brian Danielson and Christopher Daniels and all these guys, it was like they were the top students of a class and they were kind of ruling the school. 
And all the other kids, all the other top students, they all kind of knuckled down and went to college and got these jobs and became big successes. And Loki is like the guy who he was like, never could get over that he was the homecoming king and the, and the quarterback. Like he never grew up. And it's sad because he had the talent of all those other guys, but like, it's like he's the one guy that didn't leave town. You know, he never, he, he's he worked out Bundy. At, yeah. <laughs> he's a guy that, you know, he, he was his own worst enemy. I mean, he, he's worked everywhere, you know, Noah, New Japan, All Japan, WWE, and a cup of coffee, and TNA, Ring of Honor, like MLW. He has worked basically everywhere. And yet there's no one promotion I could say. Uh, the Ring of Honor comes closest where you go, oh, he really got to live up to his potential. I'll even go this, I'll even go this far. Like, I've, th- I've been thinking about it the whole time that, you know, you've all been talking. I really think that if there's any single wrestler that if you take them away from their moment, there might not have even been a Ring of Honor, like, for very long. Like, I think it was probably him at the beginning. I mean, like you said, he was the guy selling those DVDs. Yes, like, especially when you think about, like, once we were at this point in history, of our history, like there are people like me who, you know, I needed good show, great shows and great matches, but I was buying every show, even some of the B shows, just because I was so hooked on the stories and just into being like a completionist. When Ring of Fire was just starting, like it had no dedicated fan base and it was really on low key and to also to a, also a little bit of lesser extent, but like Danielson and Daniels to like, sell people go you've never heard this promotion before it's brand new but this match is so good you have to buy and on almost every one of those first six to eight shows it was a low-key match yep 100 percent. you know the the thing about low-key too if you take him out of the picture as the very first ring of honor champion the company tells a totally different tale because Usually, for me, as a fan, I want to see a heel as the champion, and I want to see all this gaggle of baby faces chasing him to try and take his title away. That's I grew up on on WCW and the NWA, and um, obviously I watched the WWF, but I liked the the Southern style a lot more. So let's say Loki isn't the first Ring of Honor champion, and it's Christopher Daniels. How different is that first year and a half to two years? Is there a Samoa Joe low-key match at Glory Honor that launches Joe's name into the the plane ticket list? Is there, you know, um, an Iron Man match with four guys in it that lasts the test of time, in my opinion, as the greatest 60-minute match of all time? I don't, there's so many questions that are that are what ifs if low key is not the guy. Yeah, it, it, that I mean the promotion. Yeah, it, he really is like, and that's what makes it crazy that like a guy that was so important to gain the the this promotion off the ground burned that bridge so badly that to this day he hasn't gotten another booking there. Like it's crazy that the, I I know you guys were talking on honorable mention about hearing that maybe a few years after this delirious very briefly tried to talk to Loki about coming back and Loki's demands apparently were so extreme that it was yep. like an immediate non-starter. But like, it's amazing that this guy couldn't at one point in the last decade and a half plus, like have smoothed things over enough to get like 
one anniversary show match like that. He's too stubborn and he's been created such a toxic reputation. I'm still like, no, I'm still not, I'm still not giving up on Tony Khan doing Danielson versus Daniels versus Loki at some point on an ROH show. It's, it's a like a point zero 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 one percent chance dream, but I'm holding on to that point zero 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 one percent chance. I think as long as Loki is refusing to even talk about his time in ROH in interviews, the odds of him appearing for Tony Khan and for ROH in general uh, dampen. Just, I mean, just pay him whatever he wants. Let him be Danielson clean. Who cares? Just do the match. The, the, the <laughs> most, I was going to say the most low key end to all this would be Tony Khan booking that match, and then low key like hours before the show saying like I've changed my mind. I don't want to lose today. I want to win this yeah. match. No, he's got to win. You got to book him. You got to book him to win. Like you know, obviously, <laughs> obviously, he's got to win clean. He's got to be dominant. That's fine. Just do it. <laughs> yeah, he's got to be dominant. Oh, then, then he's got to go give Joe his win back. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. But well, goodbye, Loki. You you were great and you were very low key and I'll miss you. But moving on. Uh before the next match, Nigel McGuinness gets on the mic to say he doesn't know what relaxed rules means. This next match he's gonna be in is relaxed rules. He doesn't know what that means though. He points out that he doesn't like Castagonads, his favorite little nickname for Claudio Castagnoli, or even Chad Collier, his partner tonight. But just because there's a beef doesn't mean they're going to stop eating chicken. Nigel says that for all those inbred, webbed feet, clam diggers, that means no punching, no chops, no kicking, and absolutely no tables or chairs. That draws booze from the crowd. Nigel says there's going to be wrist locks, hammer locks, and if you're lucky, you may get to see a couple of headlocks. Nigel says, it says wrestling on the gimmick, and wrestling's what you're going to get. At this point, Jim Cornette comes out for his second and final appearance tonight. He says he agrees that the fans deserve to see a scientific wrestling match, but they've already seen several. Cornette says that after what they happened earlier tonight, he's in the mood for a fight. He thinks the crowd's in the mood to see a fight, too. So this match will be like it is down south. Anything goes. There must be a winner. He reels off a list of... of um plunder that could be used in this match and then but they don't do hardcore wrestling in roh exactly this is the most counterproductive interview jim Cornette ever has given in roh like like i didn't write it down but like yeah to the point Cornette reels off a list of plunder that they could use in this match after the last like three shows has been nothing but Cornette cutting promos about how ringer of honor doesn't do that hardcore bullshit now you have Cornette literally telling a wrestler that doesn't want to do hardcore bullshit you have to do hardcore bullshit right now and look at the four guys in this match yeah i mean ace okay i could see it but like oh god just I banged my head against the desk. I, I, I mean, it's another example. Cornette had so much charisma, and the fans were so much on his side that, like, anything he said was going to get over. And, it, like, we're in, in that sense, we're nitpicking. But when you really just look at it objectively, like, so much of these early Cornette promos in the suit are like him being an asshole, or him being a hypocrite, or him being uninformed about, like, what the other side is. And. He's lucky he was so charismatic and he was in front of a hometown crowd because he, when you really think about what he's saying, it's like, what the fuck are you? 
Yeah. Now you're in favor of this, but anyway. But at the end of the day, he's Jim Cornette, and on terms of delivery, he's one of the greatest yeah. promos who ever lived, and yeah. it is I mean, what it is, you know? It, it all it all hits because he's Cornette, and because just the idea of the angle was so enticing. But anyway, Cornette references Bill Watts by saying, let's hook him up. That was Watts' catchphrase, along with answering his phone in the middle of a promo. And then um, we get our and anything going. out of a balcony. <laughs> our anything goes relaxed rules match Ace Steel and Claudio Castagnoli defeated Chad Collier and Nigel McGuinness in 16 minutes and 10 seconds when Claudio pinned Nigel after he hit the Oppomari water slide um I'm just gonna say I enjoyed this match I thought it was a good match but it's weird be- only because of all that pre-match build because we have Nigel cutting a promo as the heel but how there'll be nothing but wrestling, no chair, no chairs, no tables. We have Jim Cornette coming out as the baby fist, baby face commissioner saying, you know, here's all the weapons that can be used. You're going to have a goddamn hardcore match. And then this match is basically a tornado tag where there's very little plunder. There's a couple of chair shots early on from Ace Steel to Collier. Um, Claudio and Nigel go way into the crowd. And uh, N- N- Nigel, Claudio uses this... um. This section sign kind of is like a guillotine on Nigel. But after a couple minutes working in the uh, the crowd, they make their way back to the ring. And this is just a tornado match where at, even though the crowd chants for tables, they never use a table. They don't use any of the plunder they really talk about other than what I just mentioned. It's just kind of a tornado straight up tag match. And it's, it's, it's fairly good. Like it's all action. But it's just really weird that they built this whole match around like – the heels don't want to do hardcore. We're going to do hardcore. And that's not really that hardcore of a match. Like it was kind of, and like you were saying, Jeff, like these four guys not known for hardcore wrestling to begin with. So it, it, it's, I would say it's a good match, but very weird. I mean, wh- am I overreacting to this? Like, what did you think about this, Jeff? I thought it was okay. Um, I thought it was an interesting choice to make this an anything goes match. Uh, you know, I think they just labeled it relaxed rules and, you know, left that as it is and not had the Cornette promo and done the same match. I think you would have had the same effect. I don't think Jim's promo made any bit of a difference. Um, obviously, you're in the Midwest, so a Steel and Chad Collier have to go to war. Nigel and Claudio had their issue that was continuing in, in this phase of their long, 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 long-term story. Um, so I thought this was fine. Um, I enjoyed it. I know the crowd enjoyed it for whatever reason. And this is something that you'll see on future Cleveland shows too. Um, you get these brawl type matches with, with a little bit of plunder, but a lot of crowd interaction where they're fighting in the crowd. Uh, that is probably the biggest reaction that the Cleveland building will give you. Um, And I don't necessarily understand that. Um, I hated particularly when they would fight into the crowd, but just because I had to get up out of my chair, I don't know. (laughs) Um, But as far as this match goes, I like all four of these guys. I am probably the biggest Ace Steel fan of, you know, anybody in Ring of Honor. I, I think it was a, Big, big missed opportunity on Gabe's part uh, after Punk left not to do something with Ace as a, a featured player, especially after the, the Cage of Death stuff. Um, 
I think you really had a guy that had a ton of personality and a ton of versatility as a performer, much like Adam Pierce as well, just more on the babyface side. Um, this was this was good though, and I like the um, <laughs> I like the finishing sequence a lot. Um, I, I kind of popped for a, a submission hold in a street fight uh, type, you know, match uh, from Ace, um, and then you know, obviously, you know, Claudio hits the Alpha Mario water slide and gets that win, but. I mean, there is connective tissue here between all four guys. This was as good as it's going to be. I don't think they were looking to hit a grand slam. Yeah, and, and I will give credit to uh, Cleveland. Your your boys in Cleveland, I think you guys did your best work in this match because with that pre-match promo of Nigel being all cheeky and being like, if you're lucky, you might get to see a wrist lock. At one point, you guys chant in the crowd during this match, and imagine, again, it's supposed to be a hardcore match. We want wrist locks. And then Chad Collier and Nigel do a double wrist lock, and there's a big pop from the crowd. So well, in this Anything Goes match, the biggest pop might have been for a double wrist lock. Well, but that's one of the things that made the match weird to me, is that they were, like, the, the whole point of, the whole premise of the match was that this was supposed to be like a big brawl and Nigel and Chad didn't want that. So they were depriving the crowd of the hardcore stuff. Like they were, they were doing wrestling instead of brawling, but the crowd was treating those that like babyface stuff. Like they were Nigel's promo was so cheeky and funny. Yeah. Like if you're lucky, you might get to that. This crowd was like going to be funny right back to him. And then once Nigel acknowledges that by giving them what they're chanting for, even if it was being them being kind of smart, they were like, Yay, you gave us the thing we just asked for, you know? Yeah, I just well, think... I'll, I'll also point out that Nigel was on, like, every local wrestling card for the better part of probably the last four years, if not more, um, in Cleveland, so everybody knew who he was. Yeah, that's a good point, too, because so, he was, like, yeah. an Ohio mainstay, yeah. Yeah, he was yeah a it's where he came up in the guy. business, yeah. And in HWA, but I mean, he was doing shows in Cleveland and Akron and Canton, you know, the, the, the three main cities in Northeast Ohio. And I mean, I had known Nigel at this point for like probably five years since Oh one. Yeah. I mean, it's, I was a sophomore in high school probably. Uh, so, you know, a long time, Nigel had been around my life and he'd been around these wrestling fans' lives because he was on everything. Every weekend. He was driving everywhere. No, that's a good that's a good point. I um as far as this match, like I I like the premise of it, I think, more than I like the match itself, just because it, it meandered a little bit to me. Like, it didn't really have a lot of form, I guess. Like, I think they worked really hard, and there was some fun stuff for sure. I liked the beginning when they were fighting with the, the Section D sign. I, I also, there was a really good spot where, um, like, Collier basically, okay, so Ace, um, no, who was it? It was... They they double team Ace Ace and Claudio. They double team Collier. They 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 put him in like a surfboard, like like kind of like they put him in like one. Each one has one leg, and they fall back with a surfboard. And then as Collier falls backwards in the surfboard position, his head rams into Nigel's crotch. And I don't think that I have ever seen that spot before. And I bet you there that spot has not been replicated 
too many times in history, if ever, besides that in this one match. So that's yeah, that something. Cool. Yeah, it's just something clever and, and interesting. It's also interesting when you get a We Want Tables match, a We Want Tables chant that they literally just never oblige. Like they never do a, they never use a table in this match. Um, but I did like the story of the match. I did like the whole that like the, the heels were just determined to keep this a wrestling match, no matter how much fighting the baby faces tried to do. I I definitely enjoyed that. Um, so I, I don't know. Like I'm kind of mixed on it. I think they worked hard. I think there was some fun stuff, but it didn't 100% work for me. Um, but you know, I guess it, I guess it mostly worked for the crowd, so that's important. I do wonder if like if they had just tried to do it a steel versus Chad Collier singles match. Am I right in thinking that they since the big uh, spot? with the blood at punk the final chapter they have they are still yet to do an ace steel versus chad collier singles rematch am i wrong about that they've done only like two or three tags it's it's weird that they haven't just like tried to do a single i mean i know they're gonna hold off for when they go back to chicago in in uh in april or march or whenever it was but still it's a long time to not even have one rematch that was uh, weird weird to me i the other thing is if if the crowd chants we want tables, I think whatever wrestlers are in the ring should automatically not deliver tables. I, I, I agree. I, I don't know what the fixation on tables. I've said this before. What the hell is the fixation on tables? They're not even that great. Like, you know, and I said it before, especially when they're doing like even crazier stuff with like ladders and people are like, we want tables. And it's like, okay, you go through a table. Like, we've seen that a hundred times for the past 30 years. It's amazing to me what staying power tables have had as a popular spot in wrestling. They're just not that cool. I, I will uh, say the, ex- I agree, but the exception I think is a match like this where the heel say, you're not going to get tables, which always in wrestling means you are. And then yep. the face comes out and says, you're going to get tables which in wrestling means you're going to get tables, and then you still don't get tables. That's heat, baby. That's heat. <laughs> that's that's Matt's new catchphrase. That's heat, baby. Man, could you imagine? I listen. I I just think that t- going through a table means absolutely nothing nowadays, and I'm never gonna be interested in a crazy table bump ever again. And you could throw a ladder in there as well. I've seen enough ladders and tables. Uh, I think that's I'm fair for a while. I think that's I'll, fair. I'll say this: I'm not as negative on table bumps as you two. What I am negative about is the idea that we're so desperate for table bumps that indies now do door bumps. Like, oh yeah, at this point, just give up. Just give up if you can't get a table. If like, you can't afford a table to, and then have the proper equipment to safely make sure that that table is not going to kill whomever is going through it. And you just go to the local Home Depot and buy door. Uh, cut the shit. Enough. By, 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 by the by the way, Trev. I didn't mean to steal your catchphrase, but enough. I've, I've <laughs> yeah. been saying cut the shit a lot longer than she has. <laughs> and it's enough. And speaking of catchphrases, Trevor, my catchphrase is not that's heat, baby. It's bow down, lean back before I put two through you. That's my catchphrase. It's always been my catchphrase. And now you know. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a third good catcher. So now you know. But, no, uh, no, that's not it. <laughs> we go to a dimly lit section of backstage where Austin Aries appears to be heatedly talking to Matt Seidel. So we're continuing to get the scoop without actually getting the scoop. Cut to AJ Styles doing a backstage promo. 
He says he's done it all in Ring of Honor. He's been a tag champ. He won a turn at the second anniversary show. That's how he put it. He he doesn't mention that it was for the pure title and that he was the first pure champion. He just goes, I won a tournament. Um, he says, I've had classic matches here, and I've beaten Brian Danielson not once but twice with the Styles Clash. He says, I've won every title I've set my sights on here except one. He says that he'll win the he'll hit the Styles Clash tonight and win the Ring of Honor Championship. Now that reminds me, it's interesting that when AJ came back, he wasn't like, "Oh, I want a challenge for this pure title that I never lost." But no, hey, he's, yeah. he's like, "Ah, this shit's old." Yes, exactly. <laughs> he lost it to Jeff Jarrett in TNA. Oh, okay. <laughs> we should have like yeah the lineal yeah the lineal Ring title. of Honor pure champion. You know that it's someone in. TNA. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure somebody has has done it. I'm sure. And so anyway, either way, we cut to Brian Danielson backstage. He says he's been studying tapes, and this isn't 2003. It's 2006. He says it's bothered him that he hasn't been able to beat AJ Styles before, but tonight he's going to cure that problem. So a little, just quick, short little promise to build up the main event. And that brings us to the Ring of Honor Tag Team Title Match. Generation Next of Austin Aries and Roderick Strong defeat Lacey's Angels of BJ Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs, a score to the ring by Lacey, in 14 minutes flat when Aries pinned Jacobs after he hit the 450. Jeff, I'm going to let you go first, but i got to ask you a question because this is a thing. There's some debate I would see online about this. So for those who haven't seen the match, the end of this match is the, – the whole story of this match is Jimmy Jacobs – is ultra, ultra, ultra into Lacey, constantly distracted by her, just fawning over her, and BJ Whitmer's getting pissed off. Near the end of the match, they're going for BJ and uh, Jimmy are going for their tag team finisher, which is like the Doomsday Rana, where BJ puts the opponent on his shoulders, Jimmy jumps off the top rope, hits a Rana on the guy off of BJ's shoulders. Great finish. So this match, Jimmy, while he's staying on top, everything's set up. He's like takes some time to go look at Lacey standing at ringside, like talking to her, talking to her. And then he turns back and he jumps off the top rope. He goes to do the Doomsday Rana and he just completely eats shit on. He like bounces off Ares, who I think was on the shoulders, just falls to the mat, looks completely ugly and hideous. And I'll go to the Observer. Dave Meltzer wrote based on live reports or Dave or someone telling him Dave writes. Quote, they did what looked to be a botched hurricane run a double team spot, but was apparently planned to lead to the breakup. I kind of believe, aside with the people that call bullshit on that part, because, like, the easy way to do this spot, if you were going to have it be a planned botch, would have been Jimmy spent so much time talking to Lacey that Aries just jumps off the shoulders or does, like, a victory roll off the shoulders, something like this. This is, Aries just sits there for, like, an hour calmly, while Jimmy's distracted, then Jimmy tries to do the move, and it doesn't look like he, it doesn't get countered. He just completely botches it. Like he, it's not that he waited too long; he just doesn't do the move right. So I don't think this was planned. Uh, is it is it possible that it was Aries' mistake? Like he was supposed to do something, maybe, and and it, so and, and so Jimmy wasn't going to try to actually do the Rana. So like it just was this weird thing where he just fell to the mat awkwardly because I agree with you like whatever the botch was it doesn't look like it was it but it there had to be some sort of thing they were planning on that spot that wasn't just them doing the Rana yeah I mean obviously that's a a significant spot in this match but there's a whole match to this so Jeff what do you think about the match and like what do you like that, I, I don't know if that's what what the heck that spot was supposed to be so I'm gonna go backwards to 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 the beginning um I think the end of this match 
I think Aries may have been at fault. Um, I remember like Aries being up there on BJ's shoulders, and I I remember at one point his left hand and arm was up. The right one was down, the left was up, and Jimmy was still talking to Lacey. And then Jimmy finally turns around, and I think Aries had maybe tried to get his attention to say, like, let's go, come on. And because, I mean, they were there for quite some time. And then that may have been where it got lost in translation. I'm not sure. Um, Obviously, I was not in there while they were calling this finish. But um, as far as the, the actual length of the match goes, I really enjoyed it. I think BJ Whitmer is incredibly underrated in the legacy of Ring of Honor for some of the matches that he had. Um, Particularly, uh, he and Roddy, I thought, were great opponents anytime they were on opposite sides of each other. Um, Maybe, I think, BJ and Jimmy is, is the obvious, like, number one you know, opponent, but BJ and Roddy had a, this incredible chemistry with each other that I don't think many people really pull when they're looking at BJ's career. We're going to review a singles match between them on the next show, so I'm looking forward to seeing that one. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty good match. Like, maybe it's not a home run, but they definitely over the years have had several times where they're on opposite sides of each other and I tell you what, they they work really well together. They they feed into each other's strengths, and um, I think it, it worked with this match because Jimmy and Aries are great against each other as well. Um, so I really enjoyed the actual like story of the match. Um, very clearly, you see that Jimmy is so infatuated with Lacey right as they're coming out, you know, on the entrance um, that Whitmer is, you know, yelling at him. Like get his head into into things. Like get don't focus on the match. Like they got a tag title shot. Lock in, and he just won't because he's so infatuated with Lacey. Uh, the other thing too that stood out to me in this match, and this is an Aries thing. Uh, Aries when he wanted to looked like the best wrestler on the show. Any show he was on, whether Brian Danielson's on the show with him, Nigel, Roddy, whoever. Um, and there is a couple of moments where Aries is just a house of fire in this tag. And then there's, you know, times where he just kind of, like, goes through the motions. Um, I was shocked at how over he was in this on this show. Like, not that he wasn't normally over, but he felt like one of the most over guys on the show. Yeah, it, it was weird. He was always a megastar in the, I think, seven or eight shows that they ran in Cleveland. And it, it to me, it was like, okay, like, all right, go have a good match. And we saw at Enter the Dragon, uh, AJ and or, uh, Aries and, and Brian had themselves a yeah. really good match. Maybe not the best match of their, their history, but, you know, it's hard to, to top some of those you know gems that, that they had. Um, but this was good. Uh, Aries is a star, I think, in this match. Um, 
And I, I think everything really, really worked until it became the Lacey show. And, you know, obviously the match itself, the outcome I think everybody knew was a foregone conclusion, but it did not stop the fans from being engaged with the body of the match. Yeah. Um, Matt, what do you think about the match? And obviously you already kind of talked about your theory on the weird spot at the end, but yeah, I think I probably like this a little bit less than Jeff, just I think for reasons that you sort of mentioned, which is, you know, I don't think everyone in the match was trying their best to have the best match they could have. So you felt like they left some stuff on the table here. Like I get that the focus of the match was the storyline with Jacobs and women. And I think that was well done other than the, you know, the weird spot. Like I think they did a good job building to that final, you know, slap, which you'll get to, I think in a, in a few minutes, Trevor. Yeah. But, um, I do think they had a better match in them, even with that storyline. I think this was kind of formulaic, but I, I do think that Jimmy and BJ were, were really good. And I think Strong, you know, was, was, was pretty good. I think, I do think Aries, you know, maybe was, you know, it was one of those nights where Aries just wasn't full Aries. And I think, you know, it's kind of understandable. They had a pretty intense tag match the night before, um, with Danielson and Lethal. And I think this was not like a night off for them, but not them. They weren't the main event tonight. They weren't going to have their best match tonight. And so I think that's fine, especially considering that the storyline was um, was going to be the focal point at the end anyway. And, you know, the, the tag champs will live to have another match another day. Um, but I do think, you know, I guess for what it's worth, this was a good match, but I, I do think it had the potential to be much better if everybody really had that mindset. Yeah, I'm with you, Matt. Um, this was, I, I felt like this was the night where, like, I look at my reviews, like, every match, if I had to get them star ratings, which I usually don't, but, like, they'd all be, like, almost every match so far in the show, I'd be, like, three stars, three and a quarter in that range. Like, they're all good, but not, like, anything special to write home about. But, no, like, the, most of the match on the show so far, I think, have been, like, at least good. It's just not maybe, like, like the low-key Jack Evans match or this match or even the tag. The other tag we just saw, like, not quite what they could have been because there's so much great talent in these matches. But, yeah, I felt like these guys, they weren't going all out, but they weren't completely mailing it in either. And this match really was mostly about telling that story of the breakup and Jimmy Jacobs here, like, on the last show we saw, that was, like, the first show he was really being fawning over Lacey. But here he, like, almost changes tacks where – last show was, like, fawning over Lacey. Now it's, like, bitterly jealous over Lacey. Like, during the match, he's yelling at fans who are talking to her. Um, he yells at BJ. He yells at BJ not to touch her when he can't pick her up to put her on the apron, and then BJ does yeah. it. Yeah, I was just about to say, exactly. Like, and – um you know, he's talking to her during the spots when BJ wants to tag all, all sorts of, or all sorts of stuff. So they're really going heavy on that. And then of course that leads to the miscommunication near the end. Um, good enough, but you know, yeah, nothing. I did think, you know, Jacobs, I am like Jeff, like you were saying, I, I do. I am Jimmy Jacobs seems to be one of those people that people either love his work as a wrestler or hate it. I, I really like it quite a bit. I feel like he is a bit underrated and I felt like in this match, he did a really good top rope senton. Like, he flew halfway across the ring. He usually doesn't jump that far. Um, it was cool to see Aries do a Finley roll of of Jacobs on top of Whitmer and then frog splashing them both. Like, there are some cool spots in this match. I also liked, right at the start of the match, 
Ares grabs the tag rope and it comes off the turnbuckle and yeah. he has to call the ref over to, to like retie it. I, I, I like that. But, um, so that's the end of the match. And then, um, after the match, we get another big dissension angle because Jimmy begs Lacey for forgiveness as the crowd chants Jimmy fucked up. Eventually, Whitmer gets sick of Jacobs talking to Lacey and not paying attention. And he just slaps Jimmy right across the face before he just drills him, absolutely drills him with a wrist, wrist clutch exploder. Lacey yells at Whitmer for doing that, but BJ just walks away. So we've got yet another instance of dissension on this show. I think those are the only two instances. There's the the, the embassy and this. Well, you could you could argue the Matt Seidel thing at the end of the night. Oh yeah, 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 it's true, 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 yeah. true. Yes. It's a triple dissension night. Three dissensions. But, um, Three. That brings us to <laughs> Christopher Daniels with us, Alice in Danger by his side, defeating Matt Seidel via ref stoppage in 15 minutes 11 seconds when he made Seidel pass out in the Koji clutch. Um, so yeah, this was the, uh, obviously both these nights of this double shot was supposed to be Daniels versus, uh, Joe. This was the make good for this night. And the story of this match is Daniels gets hurt legitimately on a very simple looking move. It's funny how wrestlers often say that's often the very simple looking moves that actually end up hurting you. He's just like an arm drag takeover that he takes and they show an instant replay, very rare for Ring of Honor, and you see his leg, and it just looks like you wouldn't know that it was really that bad of a fall at all, but for the rest of the match, he is clearly favoring his leg, and credit to him, he guts through it to the point where I almost for a while until I read like the news reports after I watched the match, thought like, oh, he's just selling, but apparently this was a very real Leg injury, he just gutted his way through this match. And I know, I know that this is your segment, but I just wanted to, to throw him before I forget, because I think it's funny. Like, because it was a real injury, Seidel did not target it, and they played into the commentary. They're like, Seidel's being such a sportsman. He's not targeting Daniels' injury. Like, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, I, and I thought that made Prezak look kind of like a dope, because, like, that, that makes the wrestler look stupid. But then I thought Lenny Leonard saved it because Lenny then immediately says, like, because then Daniels immediately starts going after, like, an injury of Seidel's. And Dan, and Lenny Leonard points out, like, that's the difference between a veteran and a rookie. Like, the veteran's going to go after any injury. Doesn't matter. The rookie's going to be almost too nice. And I thought, you know, that was a good way of explaining why this guy, Christopher Daniels, is selling the leg the whole match and Seidel never touches it once because, yeah, how do, how do you explain that except – Oh, it's a real injury and this is a fake sport. But Matt, what do you think about the match? Um, you know, it's funny because you'd think with a big injury, like it would kind of ruin the match, and I don't think it did. Like I think they probably could, you know, could have had a better match if if Daniels wasn't hurt, but I think it made the match pretty interesting, and I think this was my favorite match of the night so far. Um I I just thought it had like it just felt different. Like it wasn't quite as good over the top as Seidel against AJ, which you know I love that match. Um, obviously, you know Daniels was hurt, and like I hadn't been loving a lot of Daniels's matches in ROH recently, but I liked the match with Loki the day before, and I really liked this. I I thought it had some some fun drama. I I liked the ending. You know, I thought that the storyline, you know that that I guess was kind of um ad-libbed with the injury uh, made the match kind of compelling, and I don't think the match overstayed its welcome. And I think Seidel has been consistently really good. The one thing that I would say is that's kind of weird to me, and I guess this is more about booking than about the match. Um, 
they're obviously giving Seidel some kind of a push in that they're really highlighting him, they're giving him promo time, they're putting him in big matches, but has he won, like, a single major match, like, other than that one trios tournament match he was in? Like, he... He lost the, the three-way with Daniels at Joe versus Kobashi. He lost the three-way with Daniels and AJ at Night of Tribute. He, um, he was the one person, like, eliminated before the final sequence in Steel Cage Warfare. He lost to AJ Styles. He lost to Daniels tonight. It's like, give the poor guy a win at some point. Book him against somebody he could beat. Jeez. I feel like Gabe often had stages for pushing a guy. It was like, stage one is... We'll book you occasionally when we're like in your region and you'll get like a five minute match or like a spot in a scramble. And then stage two is you're getting booked on every show. Stage three is like you're actually getting like significant length matches against wrestlers that are like good, but you're losing in almost all of them. And then stage four is you get some wins. And I feel like Seidel is firmly at this point still in stage three. And yeah, sometimes it feels like stage three goes on too long. Yeah, it's, it's just weird to have a guy where you're like, oh, this guy's getting a push, but wait a minute, he hasn't won anything. Like, that's weird. Like, it's weird to be pushing a guy and not having them win matches. Yeah, I would say I like this match less than you. I would put that again in this, like, three-star, three-and-a-quarter-star match. And I'd, probably, and I'd probably go three-and-a-half for this one, I would say. So I'm putting this where I would put, like, everything else. But, like, I could see why you would put – I thought this match was weird in the sense that, obviously, it can't be helped, Daniel's leg injury. But it was almost like he was too much of a trooper because, like – he ends up doing, other than him shaking out his leg, you would almost think that it was a work injury, even though it wasn't, because to his credit, I guess, like, he does, like, big leaping moves. He goes through the triple jump moonsault, you know, and he never hits it, even though he goes for it three different times. But, like, one time, Seidel just rolls out of the way. He does the jumps. Like, he does a big jumping leg, Larry. And Daniel seemed a bit off on his timing, like he was jumping too soon for certain moves, like that leg lariat and various things, and clearly favoring his leg. But yet, like, it didn't feel like – I'm sure there were things he probably wanted to do that he didn't do because of the injury. But when you watch the match, it never feels like he's not doing moves that he can't do something. Like, he still does a lot of Daniel's trademark offense. I would say the thing that kind of – bummed me out about this match was almost um there were some fun parts at the start where it was like they're picking up a nice little story of Seidel was out wrestling Daniels and Daniels was bailing to the floor and getting pissed off at one point he answers uh Chandler Biggins phone in the front row which is weird <laughs> um and 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 there's even a point where he gets so frustrated with with Seidel that he starts ramming Seidel into the barricade and Allison Dager has to calm him down and I thought oh this is a neat little story of like the young rookie is out wrestling the veteran. The veteran's losing it. But it felt like somewhere after those first few minutes, they just decided, eh, let's just do a back-and-forth match. And it's not that that match was bad, but I felt like they were kind of doing something interesting. And then maybe it just got thrown out when um, Dale's got the leg injury. He decided, eh, let's just do a match. But it just became a back-and-forth match. I did really like – they did a spot at the ver- near the very end where – um. Daniels gets uh, Seidel in the Angel's Wings, and, and Seidel just backdrops him for a pinfall attempt. And that's what um, Daniels lost to Loki to on the night before. And so this night, he kicks out, and he's looking, like, very panicked and freaked out. Like, I love that they're acknowledging, you know, the night before, a little continuity. And, uh, yeah, I mean, winning with the Koji Clutch, it was fine. But I, I just wrote my notes, to So many weird things I wrote. Daniels answers Chandler Biggins' phone during the match. Um, 
They do a good job building to the best moonsault ever. Daniels goes for it three times. The first time Seidel rolls to the ropes. The second time he grabs Daniels' foot. The third time he rolls out of the way. I thought they were teasing it so much that Daniels was definitely going to hit it to win the match. But instead, he never hits it clean and just wins with the Koji clutch. I wrote, Prezak calls this match a true testament to the dangers of professional wrestling, which I guess because the legit injury, but it really doesn't seem like the most dangerous match you've seen. Um, Daniels makes a big production this after about, I mean, the night before Daniels makes a huge production about not shaking Loki's hand. I mean, wanting to shake Loki's hand, but Loki not shaking his hand. And on this night, he doesn't decide. He decides, I'm just going to go back to not shaking people's hands, even though I really want to the night before. Made a big speech about it. And then finally, Daniels, the man with the legit injury, walks away under his own power as Seidel sells the Koji clutch forever and actually gets tasked, has to get help to the back by Ring of Honor students. I just wrote, not a bad match, but pretty damn weird, all these things kind of popping up in it. Uh, Jeff, what do you think? So I, I don't know if you have in your notes the specific ankle injury to Daniels. Do you, do it's you have literally just it? him. It's Seidel just doing an arm drag takeover, and Daniels just like – it looks like a normal landing, but apparently he just kind of jams his knee. It looks like on, on, on landing on his back and legs you know, from, a, from an arm drag. Okay, because I'm thinking back, and I, some, for whatever reason, and I know I mentioned this on our show, um, I remember high ankle sprain being kind of the thing that was talked about with Daniels, mm. um, as opposed to a knee, so maybe that, maybe I'm conflating stories, I don't know. The Observer says knee, but I would actually trust like you over because the observer sometimes kind of misreports stuff like this. So if you remember that from a live recollection and that was like the talk, I would actually honestly probably more believe that than you. I mean, he definitely is shaking out that leg, but it doesn't really become apparent like where the pain is. You can't really ask him where it hurts, but like, well, it's it, somewhere it, in the leg. The only thing that, that made it stand out to me, at least recently when I watched this back was, um, I'm dealing with an ankle issue now that has been seemingly almost a year long um, and it's going to end up being some type of uh, Liz Frank surgery which deals wow. with the foot yeah uh, <laughs> don't ever roll your your ankle outward uh, you'll never know what kind of damage it can create but Daniels was lucky because they actually did change the footage up a little bit Um and spliced a couple angles in uh, when he does roll his ankle. Um, I, I don't know if it was intentional or they didn't want to show his ankle you know, on the botched spot being covered up, um, but production changed it up so you, you just see him bail to the floor. And live, I remember him like holding that ankle, and uh, it is... It can look like a knee injury. It often yeah. feels like a knee injury because, you know, you have to walk. So you have no choice but to put pressure on it. And, you know, for those of us that have kind of dealt with this type of thing, um, I've broken my foot before. Clearly, Daniels did not break anything or he would not have been able to continue. Uh, and if he did, he'd really, truly be a warrior. But based on the injury that he suffered, to be able to gut through a 15-minute match to do the the best moonsault ever, or try and do it at least, yeah. 
uh, and miss, um, you know, to just even be able to climb up the ropes, uh, to continually bail out and, and stay on your feet. I mean, Daniels, I don't think Chris is ever going to get the credit he deserves because he's not in the the Samoa Joe, Brian Danielson, Kenny Omega group for whatever reason. But I would be hard to find a better professional wrestler overall than Christopher Daniels. And, you know, this match... Professional, professional being the operative word. He's, like, just such a pro, yes. you know? Yes. Um, you know, I, I don't know if this match would have been better had there not been an ankle injury or knee injury, whatever we're going to call it, involved. Um, but I do think the story of Seidel here is interesting. In, in the way you described the four phases of Cape's booking uh, of, of wrestlers, I think is so perfect because it does feel like Seidel is somewhere in the end of stage two into stage three here. Um, I don't know what the long-term plan was. Obviously it was for eventually these two to be tag team champions uh, down the road, but you know, even that's 11 months away. Um, you know, Seidel here very much is an unfinished product and looking at the way he has evolved in his career, uh, you got to heap a ton of praise on the Matt Seidel for being such a versatile performer. Um, to me, he's one of the MVPs of like AEW dark elevation and, and AEW dark because of the effort he puts in with younger guys. And, the funny the thing is, he's kind of like Daniels is yeah. here. He's like the pros pro that you want, the young kids you would want them to work with. He he is an essential performer on the AEW roster right now, and very much in the way that Christopher Daniels was on the ROH roster in 2006. Yeah. And, and yeah, I agree with you about, like, you guys with, like, Daniels being just so professional. Like, I think there's – it's not probably not a – it's not hard to see why, like, when uh, AEW had Stephen Arneal wrestle a match, like a, a TV celebrity, like, they had him work with Christopher Daniels. And people were kind of like, that's a little random. But it was like, was that AEW or was that, was that all in? That was all, all, all in. All yeah. Not, yeah. So so te- technically, it's AEW now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because they own it. Yeah. But, uh, but either way, I, I just feel like that's the kind of, like, that made a lot of sense to me in the sense of, you know, I think if you're a celebrity that has very little wrestling experience, you only did like one or two things before, like that's the guy I would trust on that roster, you know, of the people that worked all in, you know, to lead you through something like uh, to me, like there's wrestlers, you know, who I think are the best wrestlers in the world in terms of putting on great matches and all that. And, you know, Daniels has had some great matches, but I think sometimes there's almost a different list of wrestlers in terms of guys who like, if I had my life depended on me, a guy with two left feet who's never had a wrestling match, like having a watchable wrestling match, like this era of Christopher Daniels would be like very high on my list of guys who I would hope could maybe get me through something, you know, like he's just that kind of wrestler. It feels yeah, like, I think it's, it's a list of two, to be honest, um, Daniels and Danielson. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, I think where it starts and stops. And, you know, this is a prime example too of yes this is a work and yes 
there is some sort of plan for how all this stuff is supposed to go, but real injuries do happen. And Daniels worked his way through it and had to tough his way through what probably was a pretty painful injury. Yeah. And I'm going to, you know, heap a pile of praise on him for that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Praiseworthy performance. That is some nice alliteration. And we now go to a quick video that tells us coming soon, the return of the Briscoes, complete with some great 2002 Ring of Honor style um, public domain techno. It just brought me back. And I love seeing those clips. And yeah, Ring of Honor definitely could have used like a boost to the tag division at this point, and they were about to get it with the Briscoes. Um, and that brings us to the main event, the Ring of Honor World Title Match. Brian Danielson successfully defends the title against AJ Styles, defeating AJ via submission in 31 minutes, 22 seconds, when he made him tap out to the cross-face chicken wing. Um, I will go to the Observer's live report that Dave wrote. In Cleveland, the match of the weekend, so he, they're saying that the live reports, this was the best match of either night of the double shot, was Danielson over AJ Styles to keep the Ring of Honor belt, which we've gotten reports from four stars to even four and a half stars. They started out technical until Danielson spit in Styles' face. They had a long, excellent match with Danielson winning. Um, Jeff, what do you think? I mean, this was a pretty big match. I, I, I would feel like Ring of Honor treated um cleveland felt like 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 a strong b market but you know this is a pretty big match from a marquee standpoint to deliver you know like aj danielson haven't wrestled in in ring of honor for three years at this point i think and two and a half but match. yeah two and two and a half yeah um so the thing about match of the weekend i completely agree um the night before was an interesting night for me, I generally view those shows with tons of tag matches kind of as a separate entity, yeah. almost. Not not by by force, but there is a different feel to a ton of tag team wrestling and a show. Um, having been to a trios tournament, uh, not a non-Chikara trios tournament, a, a um, AIW, I think they called it the Jack of All Trios. <laughs> Something like that. It was to qualify for the Chikara Trios tournament. Um, there is definitely something about a show of six-man tags where you're just like, all right, I'm over it. I've yeah. seen enough of this. So, yes, I would say this is by far and away the match of the weekend. Um, there is just something about Brian Danielson. And... I don't know whether you can call him a once in a lifetime performer, once in a generation. Um, I was not old enough or into wrestling to see Ric Flair at his peak. Um, so, you know, 89 ish. Uh, I have seen Kenny Omega where he is, you know, in recent years. I've seen Brian Danielson his entire career. And I have yet to see a more consistent, talented, complete package and gifted performer than a Brian Danielson in any aspect of professional wrestling. And if you were to ask me, is he the greatest wrestler of all time? My answer would be an emphatic yes. Um, pun intended, I guess. Uh, but this match is just another example of 
Brian taking a match. Everybody knew he was going to win, making AJ look like he was going to beat him several times over, including the spiral tap uh, spot, which, I mean, that was maybe the loudest pop of the whole night. Uh, AJ hitting the spiral tap, Brian kicking out. Um, it just, there's something about a big fight feel that Brian presents. AJ Styles brought his A game, which was not always the case for him in Ring of Honor, uh, especially after he came back. Um, this is, this is maybe, uh, one of AJ's best ROH matches on the whole. And uh, certainly uh, right up there with some of, of the previous matches he had with Brian, uh, main event spectacles and... All-Star Extravaganza. All-Star Extravaganza, thank you. Um, I think there are a ton of different little things in this match that you can pull away, but I'll spare the details, and I'll just say that um, Brian finishing with the chicken wing is... Awesome. I love that he's brought that back. Modern times. Um, AJ does a great job trying to get out of it. And I think this was just a great wrestling match to cap off a fun, you know, solid show. Matt, I mean, I was going to ask you not only what you thought about this match, but how is it compared to the other two we've seen. But we take so long to do the podcast I had to look at my notes just to remember what I thought about the last two AJ Styles Brian Danielson matches. So, can you even compare them? Like, like or is my are, is your memory better than mine? Now, that is the huge question for this podcast. Well, I was extremely, maybe like one of the highest on their first match um, from All Star Extravaganza. So, I can definitely compare, and I would say I did not like this as much as the first one. I liked it more than the second one. I liked it so not as much as All Star Extravaganza, more than. Uh, main event spectacles. So I thought this was a great match. The thing is, like, they've wrestled a lot of times, you know, since that 2002 match, um, including a bunch of matches in WWE, including a bunch of very celebrated matches in WWE. But to me, they never matched the All Star Extravaganza match. I just felt like that match had everything going on all at once. Main event spectacles, I actually found kind of disappointing. Um, this was a great match. It wasn't as good, but I, I agree that it was the match of the weekend, I think, for my for my tastes anyway. Um, you know, and obviously the big difference here between those previous two matches was Danielson's new character, where he gets to be that prick. Because, you know, he did show a lot, a little bit more aggression in those AJ matches in 02 and 03 than he was in a lot of other matches. You know, like, like there were points in this match where he was, like, clawing at AJ's face and, like, grinding it, and, like, he was working on AJ Styles' nose, like the bloody nose, and um, he had done some version of that in the other matches, too, where he was getting aggressive. Um, I think this match wasn't quite as stiff as the main event spectacles match, because I think that was like the main hook in that one. Um, but I think it, it kind of you know, split the difference between the first and the second matches. Um, you know, like they, they do a lot of stuff with like uh, AJ, AJ spitting on Danielson's hand when, when Danielson tried to, uh, extend it. And Danielson, like, really milks that for a while. He, like, smirks and he, like, stares at the crowd, then he wipes it on his trunks. You know, I think 2002, 2003, Danielson wouldn't have had the ability or, like, the wherewithal to do that. 
And then that leads to immediately after Danielson backing AJ in the corner, clawing at his face, spitting in it, and then AJ goes gets real aggressive and takes Danielson down. And I thought that was a really fun opening sequence. Um, and you know, then it kind of just it gets back and forth for a while. And it's funny because at different points the crowd seems like almost like they're more behind Danielson than AJ. But I think that might just be like a couple of very loud anti-AJ folks who just boo a lot whenever he gets one up on Danielson. I don't think that was actually representative of the uh, the entire crowd. Um, but you know, Danielson does his European uppercuts. Uh, AJ gets his strikes in. Um, they do this like Muda lock, chin lock fight on the ground, and then. Danielson avoids the Styles clash and takes over and does his double arm suplex and missile drop kicks, gets a bunch of two counts, and, and then just like stands on AJ's face. So, like, Danielson keeps throwing in these little, like, heelish, I guess, flourishes. Um, you know, they, they brawl onto the floor at one point. There's, there's actually one spot where Danielson, Danielson throws AJ into the guardrail and AJ does that thing where he leaps over it, but this time he lands on some fans. Yeah. Then he, then he tries to leap onto the guardrail and jump off with a forearm, and he actually slips, but he's so talented that even on a slip, he actually hits the forearm, and it looks good anyway. Like, that's just, like, I think that sums up AJ Styles. Like, even, like, especially in this era, he was so athletic that even when he, like, slips, he still manages to, like, do a better jump than most people when they're, like, firm-footed. Um, so that's what AJ has going for him. Um, there's one point in the match that, I, that really stood out to me. Which is, there's a boring chant, and Lenny Leonard goes so off on this boring chant. Like, <laughs> the crowd chants shut the fuck up, and Lenny Leonard's like, how could they be chanting boring? Can you imagine these people chanting boring, and the crowd told them what to think? And it's just like, yeah, that's Gabe, right? Gabe is like, yeah, you 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 better say something about this boring chant and talk about how stupid it is. Like, that's that clearly exactly got to like Gabe. Gabe's rants yeah. on, on those shows. And then, did you notice, praise back afterwards, goes like, you gotta love like Ring of Honor fans policing them, how they police themselves. Which is a Gabe line from way back, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, So, uh, so here's the thing about this match. So the thing that takes it down just just a tad to me, because I think it it does build to a good finish and stuff. But I think this like AJ was good in this match, and Danielson was was great as he always is. I still think that AJ wasn't full AJ here. Like, I'm not saying that he was being lazy or anything like that, but I don't think he came into this match with the mentality that he would come into a TNA match. And I, and again, I'm not saying it's because he wants to be lazy. I think it's more like he had this idea like, okay, I'm going to work a Danielson style match. I'm not going to work my TNA style. And I think that was more like stylistically intentional, no pun intended, than it was like him trying to save himself. But I still think if AJ just decided that he was going to be full AJ, moved a little bit quicker, did a little bit more dives and athletic stuff, I think this match could have reached an even more epic level. So I don't think it reached that epic level, but I do think that the story was good with, you know, because the whole thing is that the Styles class is Danielson's kryptonite, so Danielson had to keep avoiding it. Um, so, like, I would put this at, like, the four star range, four and a quarter, maybe. Sounds about right to me, but you know this could have this been like a real legendary match. I you know I do think they had one in, at All Star Extravaganza. That match was very high on the match of the year list for me, and this I don't think will be very high in the match of the year 2006. But that also just speaks to what an amazing year Danielson had in 2006. That this is still not one of Danielson's most remembered title defenses, even though it is a great match. Yeah, Matt, let me uh, let me oh, ask cool. you this um, as far as like. This being more uh, 
a TNAJ match. Um, do you think Danielson kind of pulled him out of that real quick? Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. He noticed it? I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. You'd probably know better than me because you know these guys a little bit. I mean, I, I, I certainly wouldn't say I know AJ. Um, I, I would tend to prefer to stay away from him. Um, <laughs> but as far as Danielson goes, I mean, I don't know him well enough to say like, oh, he didn't like this match because most wrestlers will say like, oh, I didn't like any of my matches. I'm terrible. I am the shits. I don't belong on a show, blah, blah, blah. But Brian is the best wrestler in the world for a reason. And if I had to really like pull the truth serum out of him, I would definitely, you know, probably be able to get him on record saying like, yeah, uh, AJ kind of was taking it easy early. And I said, nope, we're not doing that here. Not here in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, in the Gray's Armory, the historic Gray's Armory, and uh, we're going to have ourselves a fight. And they they uh, they made it into a good struggle, which is the best types of wrestling. That they that they definitely did. Yeah, I I agree with you, Matt. That I would think right around four stars for this, and I agree with both of you. This is probably the uh, the match of the weekend. Well, definitely the match of the weekend of the double shot. Um. I, I think Brian Danielson is one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. I think if there's any flaws he has in matches of this era, they occasionally can feel long for long sake. They're almost all going half an hour. And sometimes they feel like I know how much he loves calling the entire thing in the ring. Like occasionally it can feel too much like he's like, they don't really coalesce around like a central story or a point. Like he's just doing stuff as he kind of like free, like like free jazz. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like this, <laughs> I feel, the Brian Danielson, the Miles Davis of our time. But, um, honestly, you know, by wrestling, so by wrestling standards, that's, and, uh, that's a hell of a, hell of an analogy. But, um, my dad ever listens to this. He is going to pop like crazy. <laughs> Just pull out um, that clip. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like this match, um, he avoids the first, the second, maybe he doesn't like, I feel like even though this match was a half an hour, I was never bored. And I actually really liked the first 10 minutes, even though like it was weird. I could easily make an argument for cutting the first 10 minutes. Cause a lot of it was just grappling and mat work. And, um, and like, like you said, Matt, like Danielson really milking certain things like the spit in the hand, he milks for a long time. But yet to me, that was all really fun stuff. So I wouldn't want to cut it, even though you could technically say it's not essential. I, I really like like this is a great match to see, and I think you guys talked about Jeff on an honorable mention. Like Danielson's really good. The, both these guys in this match at like the struggle, like they make simple moves that other guys would just lie in. Interesting. Like Danielson when he has AJ in a headlock, he's like cranking on it and then palm striking AJ in the side of the head and then cranking on it again. Like he's not just lying there limply. Or they do a sequence where Dan. AJ Styles is constantly like getting uh, Danielson in wrist locks and and Danielson keeps breaking free. AJ immediately puts it back in and Danielson's getting pissed off. Like little stuff like that where it's just simple moves, but they're making them actually entertaining by really devoting themselves to them. And then it builds and like the last 20 minutes are really fun in their own way. But the one thing I will say is it doesn't really, other than the little bit of a standard story of, oh, 
Danielson's trying to avoid the Styles Clash. Like, it doesn't really build to, like, a big story or a huge, like, crescendo. It just feels like they're doing lots of good wrestling back and forth, and they they have the final few moves, and it's over. But still a great match. And um, Danielson takes a couple scary bumps in this match. AJ back suplexes Danielson over the top rope to the floor. Danielson, like, I think he protected himself, but it looked like he was inches away from really catching himself on the apron on the way down. And then that spiral tap AJ does for the big near fall on Danielson, he just crushes him on that move. Like, I thought, man, you really landed full weight on that poor guy. Um, and this is another early instance, too, of uh, most of the early Danielson matches, the crowd never gets – they never play the entrance to that second, like, final countdown. And I think this was, like, the second time that the crowd did got to it. And I think this was the time that the crowd really – Shout along that second time when I got to the final countdown in his entrance. And you look at Brian Danielson and when they do it for this first time, he gets like this huge ear to ear grin on his face. Like he is so happy and knowing the story of this, of that entrance music that we've gone into that he chose this because it was like considered by some music magazine as the worst song of all time. You have to think he was just in love with the idea of like, I got this entire crowd of hundreds of people is now chanting along and like singing along to what some magazines say was the worst song of all time. Like he's just so happy in that brief moment. Hey, but, people still reference the final count. Zack Sabre Jr. Didn't he reference the final countdown in a promo against Danielson recently? So it's yeah. like, and they, Danielson hasn't used that music in like what? 13 years. So it's like, Hey, that, that he got that, he got that music over. That's for sure. I mean, Tony Khan said he tried to get the, the song when they signed up for AEW before they commissioned that original song, but it was apparently Europe wanted way too much money to play that song, which is something Lenny Leonard's talked about in the past about like, they asked for a lot to play it on the win ring of our ran pay-per-views too much. And so that they wouldn't do it. So that shows how iconic it was where that was even Tony Khan's first idea of like, let's not do like another flight of the bumblebees or anything like that. Like, let's go back to final countdown. It's just, they couldn't make it make financial sense. But, um, after the match, Danielson spits in his hand and offers a handshake playing up the AJ spitting in his hand during the match. AJ spits his own hand and they shake. So I guess they're like spit brothers now. And that was a cute Gross. little way. <laughs> that was a cute little way to end the uh, the little, not really feud, but the tension they really had in the match. Dissension uh, we, in the match. <laughs> dissension and tension resolved. Um, we joined BJ Whitmer backstage as Gabe from behind the camera begins a five second countdown to begin oh. his promo, but Lacey interrupts it. Demanding to know why AJ did, BJ did what he did tonight in the ring. BJ says, Jimmy Jacobs has lost his mind over Lacey. Lacey tells BJ that he needs to listen to her. BJ replies that Lacey needs to stay out of his way and she should ask Alice in danger what happens when a woman gets in his way. And, uh, not great. Jesus. BJ then walks away as Lacey says he hasn't seen the last of her. So kind of crazy. This isn't was it intentional. I was just gonna say, maybe this is what you were about to say. Like BJ Whitmer was also the guy that like attacked Lucy and got her out of Ring of Honor. So like I think without intending, Ring of Honor has basically crafted a character for BJ Whitmer. Like he's the guy who 
violently assaults women, which is yeah, probably uh, not something that he'd want to lay claim to now. I would think. Yeah. Um, so, but the thing, so interesting point. The next time we see Jimmy Jacobs, if I'm not mistaken, him and BJ Whitmer have an incredibly memorable match in Detroit, Michigan. Like. For all sorts of good and very bad reasons, um, and it kicked, and it, and this is the beginning of like a pretty legendary little rivalry between those two that spans the next year. But that next match in Detroit is the one that really, I think, it probably makes Jimmy Jacobs' career in some ways. Honestly, it's a, a decade. Pardon the pun. I don't know when you guys will ever get to covering. The <laughs> no, decade. never. A decade. I don't yeah. know, but. uh a decade-long association between Whitmer and Jacobs is partners, rivals, uh, friends, foes, and, um, you know, it, it, it's funny. I, I've never really told this story publicly, so I'll just throw it in here because it's perfectly appropriate. Uh, it was it a AEW show? Uh, I want to say it might have been All Out last year. Uh, when they did the Impact title switch with Christian and Kenny Omega, it was it was yeah. at, it was at Rampage. Yeah, the, okay. So the, the first ran the first Rampage. Rampage. Okay, so it was the first Rampage. So that would have been Pittsburgh. Yes. Um. So, uh, I'm in catering during the day, and I'm with Hagedorn, of course, and uh, I see BJ, and he's sitting at a table. And Jimmy Jacobs is sitting next to him with Scott Demore from TNA. And I just walk by BJ and Jimmy and I go, eh, boy, things never change, do they? It's like a high school reunion once again. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was really cool to see those two next to each other after all these years. And, yeah, you couldn't ask for, for two nicer guys. So um, the fact that their story is paired together uh, in so many ways, and it kicked off, you know, after what I thought was a fun tag team run. Yeah, um, that could have been more, much like the Raven Shelley tag team could have been more. Um, those two guys, you know, had a kick-ass feud, and we're we're headed right into the teeth of things. It's crazy that that's probably like in many ways each guy's most memorable feud or one of them and they've been so tied together when like they were brought together by complete happenstance with like if Dan Moff doesn't have his situation with Homicide's family, yeah. like they're never together. So they probably it's another like you were going to talk about a what if earlier with low key. Like that's another what if like if that doesn't happen, they don't get thrown together in this odd couple tag team. They don't have this feud like you know, who knows where Jimmy Jacobs is, you know, I mean, the Lacey thing was obviously huge, but you know, does that even happen if they don't get thrown oh. together? Maybe, I mean, who knows? Like it's just Lacey's like crazy. still managing special K and, and Lacey's angels of deranged and Izzy or whatever combination it was. Whitmer and Moff still tagging together. Yeah. Jacobs is out on his ass. Yeah. It's based on what one... Gabe and Jimmy have said. Yeah. It's just, weird how opportunity sometimes comes when like the thing that you weren't expecting ends up being the most important thing. If you kind of seize on it, but gosh, to grab that brass ring. Was, <laughs> uh, that's the first time I've ever tried a Vince McMahon impression. Not going to do it again. I'm going to say this. That wasn't scared, bad. That scared <laughs> me. And I didn't know who it was. At first. Thank I you. Know. 
You transformed your face there. You became a different person in a way gotta, that, quite frankly, unsettled me. Well, you just gotta, gotta do, you know, goddamn pal. Okay, well, that I can do. I can do that one. So, uh, finally, we go elsewhere backstage for the pulse-pounding conclusion of this <laughs> multi-show storyline, where Dave Frazak is joined by Matt Seidel and Austin Aries. I wrote, it's decision time. Seidel has decided he wants to go for the tag belts with AJ. Aries says he's not trying to be a dick, but sometimes as a leader, you need to put your foot down. He's not saying Seidel owes them anything, but he does ask, where would Matt Seidel be, but where was he before he joined Generation Next? Seidel says he's never had an opportunity like this in his whole life. There's no reason for him to pass this up. Aries says, look, the reason to, is to pass this up is to sacrifice for the group, and without Generation Next, you wouldn't have opportunities like this to begin with. Seidel says, with an attitude like that, Aries is making his decision pretty easy. And then he walks away, but like a complete dick, shoulder checks Dave Frazak as he walks away, like really roughly. Aries just laughs to himself. He's like, I can't believe this is happening. And that's it. That We get Seidel's decision in an angle so far where I would argue neither side looks good. <laughs> like, Aries, you know, Generation Next was supposed to be founded on, like, internal competition. And so Aries looks like kind of a wuss and like a hypocrite being like, don't go after us. And Seidel actually looks kind of like a douchebag for going after the tag titles of a stable he just joined a few months ago. So, like, I would argue this is an angle so far where both sides are the heels. Well, like LeBron's decision. Yeah, exactly. I feel like, you know what, maybe that's maybe that's true to life in athletics, you know, where both guys are just kind of the heels. And then we end with ads for FIP, Ring of Our Straight Shooting Line of Shooting Reviews, and that is it. That was dissension that was the double shot and it's an interesting because um i would say most double shots in ring of honor you know there's the b show and then the a show and the a show clearly has the better cards in the larger market i would argue that this was a rare double shot where i would say these were both b plus shows i would say like they were both better than a regular b show maybe not quite that a show level and you could argue these were both b plus level markets like the two best b show markets at this time and they gave them good really good shows you know, nothing's essential, but there is a great match. And again, I thought up and down, even if a lot of the matches on the on the card, you know, weren't as good as they could have been with the talent. I think pretty much up and down the card, it's good, good outright good matches with a great match made event. The cornet angle was fun, even if he does have some corning, you know, pun intended, one liners. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed the show quite a bit. Uh, Jeff, what do you think? I mean, you've already covered this show once. And you've been there live. You've seen the show too many times probably now. But what did you think of it? Uh, fun show. Uh, eventful show. Um, you know, long-term takeaways are going to be uh, the AJ and Brian match as being one of the stronger matches uh, in that building uh, over all the shows that ROH would run there. Uh, I would also say, uh, you know, the fun stuff with, like, Joe and him drawing a, a giant penis on the DVD cover of Night of the <laughs> Grudges. The highlight. Um, and then I, I think also, um, as silly as it may sound, uh, I really, really enjoyed Jay Fury and Adam Pierce, And that may sound like a... a crazy statement to make, but sometimes it's the simplicity and the execution of that simplicity that I enjoy the most about wrestling. Um, 
I thought Jay Fury showed out, and I thought Adam stayed true to his character. And Wade Keller can argue with me all he wants, <laughs> but that's Look, the Adam Pierce I know and love. And, you know, for me, like, my favorite wrestlers in Ring of Honor around this time were Joe, Adam Pierce, BJ Whitmer, Roderick Strong, Brian Danielson. And I got to see the best of everybody tonight. Matt, what do you think about this? I think I like Tag Wars a bit more. I think it just had like some more dynamic matches, and I had some disappointment with a few of like the matches in the middle. But I like the last two matches a lot. You know, I, I think I liked the the Daniels Sidell match more than 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 everybody else on the show, and I obviously like the main event a lot. So, you know, it's hard to go wrong there. And I, but I think the the strength of this show was more what it set up than what it settled. And I think it set, set up a lot of promising things to uh, to come in the next few months of ROH. So I think, you know, whenever a show can do that, that's that's pretty successful. So that brings us to plugs. Uh, Jeff, obviously we... If we if we had gave away a dime for every time we've plugged we've mentioned your show on our show in some way, you guys would be very rich people. But it's time for you to give the official plug for that and anything else you would like to plug. So a uh, couple things. First of all, I'll start with an honorable mention uh, with myself and Shane Hagedorn. Uh, we drop our shows. Uh, I would say almost every Tuesday, if not every other Tuesday. Uh, obviously, Hagedorn has a baby on the way, and my work schedule is insane. So uh, we try and get a show out every week, if not every other week. But we're 202 episodes into wow. uh, Ring of Honor, including interviews. Um, I highly recommend you guys all go listen to the interview with Kayla Guffey, Jimmy Rave's daughter that I just did, um, and help her. Uh, hunt down the missing gear uh, that was her father's that belongs to the Guffey family and uh, you know all the pertinent information on how to contact her if you know anything is in the social media for an honorable mention which is Twitter uh, at an honorable pod Um, my personal Twitter I can be DM'd I have open DMs so slide in there if you know anything and uh, I'll pass on word there is some cash and prizes and such if you're able to turn over information that leads to anything but uh i am on twitter at mr jeff schwartz zero and schwartz is s-c-h-w-a-r-t-z um i also want to get a, a plug in for um nami which is the national alliance on mental illness um i know we talked about one very important topic at the top mm-hmm. of the show with what Trevor is doing. And I say support that. Uh, I know I will be supporting that to keep Trevor on Twitter. And because it's something I believe in strongly, but the national Alliance on mental illness um, is a free mental health helpline. And there's uh, 600 plus uh, local and state um, NAMI places that you can get digital help uh, over the computer you can call and talk on the phone, or you can see a therapist in person. And uh, the amount of gun violence and mental health issues in this country uh, over the better part of the last you know, decade is something I'm incredibly passionate about and incredibly disgusted and have had enough of. So as we've you know reached a month 
um, since the Uvalde uh, school shooting. Um, my stance on guns has gone from, you know, have the, have all your guns, leave them at home, to, eh, I don't think we're responsible enough to have any guns, period. So, um, obviously, we know a lot of the mass shootings come from people with mental health issues, and um, I just think everybody should go see a therapist yeah. uh, out there. If you have, even if you can't feel, if you feel like you can't afford it, uh, NAMI is going to offer you some free uh, help and it doesn't hurt to share your own thoughts and, and issues with other people because somebody else may have the answers for you. Um, I myself have been in therapy since I was uh, 16 years old. I've had the same therapist for the entire time period. Wow. Wow. Nice. And uh, shout out to Tom Funk. Um <laughs> He's he is a great guy, and he has helped me grow up uh, from a very very immature young adult to uh, I would say a fairly mature thirty uh, six <laughs> year old man, and uh, I can't thank him enough. And uh, he's the inspiration behind um, why Nami is so important to me, and and why I think it should be important to all of you in the uh, deep vein thrombosos out there. <laughs> oh, thank you, and and I want to mention. Um, for as far as therapy goes, I'm someone who believes that, you know, you don't necessarily have to do it for, for years and years, but I believe there is not a single person in the history of the earth that couldn't benefit from some form of therapy at some time in their life. I think everybody should try it at least at some point, even if it's only for a short amount of time. Yeah, uh, this won't be a shock to nobody. I have been in therapy. Um, but Jeff, congratulations on joining Stephen Graham as like in the a very exclusive club of guests that used their plug time to promote an actual very good cause. Not judging anybody else, but that was very, very nice and sweet oh, and well, important. If we're speaking of uh, causes, Haggard would be mad if I didn't mention patreon.com backslash an honorable pod. Okay, that balances uh, it out. Yeah. <laughs> that, that I point. kind of forgot. Oh. Uh, I had well, that's no- what this is for. I had notes of like what I was supposed to plug, and it was like Nami, uh, Kayla Guffey's uh, search for Jimmy's gear, uh, my social media, podcast social media, and then question mark. And I guess question mark was patreon.com backslash an honorable pod, uh, where you can get the show early, you can get it ad free. Uh, the show's on video if you're a part of a certain tier. My DVD collection is an open book uh, for all of our patrons. Uh, I'm throwing up shows on YouTube that go on to Patreon every week. Um, there's you know, bonus unboxing videos, sneaker videos. If I buy a new pair of shoes and I open them up, I'll film that. There's a million different things that we have up there. Show formats, DVD covers, all sorts of things. So head over there and uh, give us this... Uh, couple bucks a month or if you really want to get in there and get in that dvd collection um you know this will it'll go right into your Dropbox, so you'll have an iso of the disc and you can do what you want with it uh cost you zero dollars you're just paying to be a patron yeah and again that's that there's a great cause and some great stuff and uh if you want to get access to our stuff it's the same old ways at Trevor Dame on Twitter, at Mayor MGF on Twitter, 
um, through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H for through. That's the ways you get in contact with us. And next time on the show, Matt and I will be back covering one of the weirdest shows in Ring of Honor history, <laughs> a night where everything went wrong, unscripted two, main evented by Brian Danielson teaming up with CM Punk. The two guys that are like at the center right now of, oh my God, they're both hurt. They're like, they're cratering this Forbidden Door show because, God damn it, they were supposed to carry the show. They team up together. It's CM Punk's final Ring of Honor match, although who knows about that? Who knows what the future holds? TNA's relationship with Ring of Honor takes another turn. All, all sorts of stuff happens. It is a bizarre night of wrestling. Can't wait to talk about it. So until next time, have a good time. Have a great time. <laughs>